Can a reader fail a piece of literature? To avoid failure, should readers undergo training? Read the works of Tantra, then reread them, and you might understand why I'm asking questions like this. On this episode, I've got some help answering them in the form of Stefan Rusinov, a Chinese to Bulgarian translator, a friend of the show, and a well trained reader of the experimental literature of Tantra. Sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? Before I get onto the Truchific news, uh, the translated Chinese fiction news, I have a quick apology to make. It's just related to the interview. I did a slight goof whilst I was recording it. Though my nice USB microphone was plugged in when I was doing this interview, and it's always set as my uh, like default um, audio input device, um, this time for my call with Stefan, Zoom for some reason decided to use my laptop's really rubbish built-in microphone. So Stefan sounds fine in the interview, his audio is nice and crisp, but I kind of sound like I'm phoning in from one of Tantra's void spaces, slightly muffled basically. So um, there's just an advance warning. I didn't want to go back and re-record the whole thing because it's quite a long interview and I think I was able to touch up the audio enough to make it all right. But yeah, sorry about that. It really shouldn't happen again. Okay, onto the Trichofic news. So like I said, it's a very long interview, so I'm going to keep the news short today. Uh, I'm just going to talk about two little uh, pieces of news. So the first one, this isn't actually news, this is just something that's come to my attention that's quite interesting and which I'd like to do a show about. There are already plans in the works. So this is a book called The Flock of Bahwe and Other Stories. And The Flock of Bahwe is a very strange little thing. It's um, it's a translation of stories from the Chinese internet which are like written in the style of H.P. Lovecraft stories. So they're Translated Chinese Lovecraftian web fiction, and to add to the weirdness, the translators are, well there's, there's no way to say it without it being what it is, they're, I think they're like online alt-right guys, um, so you know, do be aware of that. But yeah, uh, there's our story set in Sichuan, uh, Tibet, Qingdao, I won't read the whole blurb, but I will put a link to this book in the show notes, um, certainly looks interesting. Yeah, so that's that one. Second piece of news. Uh, it's about Yanga. Um, yet again, another news item about her. Her uh, book, White Horse, has been shortlisted for the, the Warwick Woman in Translation Prize. Um, there'll be a link to White Horse's page on its publisher, uh, Hope Republishing site. Um, I can read this blurb, it's pretty short. So, about White Horse. Yunyun lives in a small West China town with her widowed father and an uncle and an older cousin who live nearby. One day, her once secure world begins to fall apart. Through her eyes, we observe her cousin, Zhang Qing, keen to dive into the excitements of adolescence, adolescence, but clashing with repressive parents. Ensuing tensions reveal that the relationships between the two families are founded on a terrible lie. So, if you've read and enjoyed Chili Bean Pace Clan, this one sounds like it might be up your alley too. I've not read it, although definitely want to read it uh, one day. So yeah, I think that's all we've got to say. So let's get on with the uh, interview. Let's hear what me and Stefan had to say about I Live in the Slums by Tantra. No, no, it's uh, Stefan, not Stefan. Stefan, right. Stefan Rusinov. Stefan would be in, if, I were, if I were French. Right. Stefan, not Stefan. Okay. I might, that <laughs> might slip, but yeah. That is all right. I mean, you can call me Susan if you want, you know. So long as it begins with S. Right. So I'm on the show with, oh man, Stefan. <laughs> Stefan, <laughs> not Stefan. I'm on the show with, um, I'm choking every time now. <laughs> Stefan. I'm on the show with Stefan Rusinov. 
he's a friend of the show, so it's really exciting to have him on. Um, Stefan, Stefan, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, it's been uh, pumpkin season for a while, so I'm thinking about making this um, pastry thing with pumping, pumpkin we make here. It's called uh, tikvinik in Bulgarian. Right. And the uh, interesting thing is that this word can also be used as an insult for some reason unknown to me. So oh. if I want to say if I want to say that you're dumb, I can call you tikvinik, meaning you're... this pastry thing with pumpkin. Uh, so it's something like like tart in English, right? Mm. Well, I know in the, the states they like pumpkin pies, and a pumpkin pie is really, to my eyes, more like a tart. So I'm yeah. my little um, amateur translator brain is thinking. If we're putting this into an English novel, would we preserve the Bulgarian word, or would we be like, "You are, yeah. you, you're a stupid pumpkin pie"? Shut up. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. That's always a question while translating. Mm, yeah. Um, so you've mentioned you're you're Bulgarian, living in Bulgaria. Um, can you tell the listeners a wee bit more about yourself and what it is you do? Well, what I do, besides translating, which occupies most of my time is I wash a lot of dishes because I don't own a dishwasher. <laughs> and that is basically the only reason I have any time to listen to podcasts, yours in particular, which is one of my very favorite, favorite, favorite ones. Thanks. So your eloquent ways and my dishwashing are the fundamental reason I ended up recording this episode with you. Excellent. Other, yeah. Other than that, for the past nine years, I've been trying to import contemporary Chinese literature into the Bulgarian domain. And the surprising result of that is that I still have not starved to death. Mm. And I also teach a little Chinese culture in Sofia University, which is our biggest one here. And it's also my alma mater. Right. And from this year, I also teach a course in literature translation from Chinese, which, contrary to what you might think, Pays even less than translating. And I recently also started a podcast where oh. I converse with different translators from all kinds of languages about their work on specific books, which was honestly to a large degree inspired by Trichafik and turned out to be lots of fun. Excellent. Uh, what's that one called? Uh, it's called uh, Footnotes. Footnotes. Okay. Um, yeah. I guess we can we can plug that properly at the end of the episode with the links and stuff. But yeah, footnotes. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a Bulgarian, so no, no one would be interested, really. Right. Okay. Right. Bulgarian language podcast. So if anyone yeah. listening, if any, we have any other Bulgarian listeners <laughs> apart from Stefan, that that obviously you guys should go uh, subscribe to that one. Right. Right. So um, lots of things we could pick up there later. Yeah, I will quiz you all sorts, all sorts of questions about um, your, your work. But here's just a wee fun fact right off the bat. Um, Stefan is the third person we've had on the show who's been a translator of Liu Cixin, um, author of The Three-Body Problem. Uh, the other two, if you're a new listener, uh, they were Ken Liu, obviously, although we had him on talking about translating Ha Jinfang, uh, not Liu Cixin, and Zach Kaluza, who um, has translated just one of Liu Cixin's start, short stories, maybe one or two. Um, but he was on talking about translating a crime novel. So here we have another translator of Liu Cixin not on to talk about Liu Cixin. Pretty cool. Do you want to talk about that? What Liu Cixin you're translating? I mm. mean, if you want to, I've already done the first part, the three-body problem, uh, which came out this May, I think. And I've already finished 
uh, the dark forest which is about to come out next year i think in bulgaria mm. and i'm about to start doing the third part and that's about it i guess are you uh, is, is it getting much traction over there do you know uh, i think so yeah i mean i don't know how how it sells but um it's uh, it's been received pretty well a lot of people are saying because i'm not i haven't been much into sci-fi so i'm not very well read in this domain but a lot of people say that there are not many good sci-fi novels coming out in Bulgarian. So a lot of people are saying that it's a good cool. breath of fresh air to have this read and they like it a lot. Most of Fantastic. Um, I could probably keep quizzing you about the three-body problem for a whole episode's worth of material, but that's not this episode. So let's keep it moving. Um, I do want to quiz you a little bit more about yourself, though. Um, what was your introduction to Chinese lit or just Chinese things in general? And well, we've already we already know a little bit about where it's led you, but it, did it take you down any interesting paths? I guess so. Yeah. Well, mm, my bachelor degree in Sofia University was in Chinese studies, where we had classes on Chinese literature pretty much every semester, from ancient literature the first year going all the way to contemporary in the last year. And I remember these were the times when I was most susceptible to new stories and ideas. I was very passionate about literature and I read all the time. <laughs> and even so, Chinese literature seemed so boring back then. I never felt that we studied what we studied had anything interesting to say about life and my life in particular. Mm. So back then I ended up reading everything but Chinese literature during all of my bachelor years. I guess I should note that, uh, of course, there are not so many translations mm -hmm. from Chinese available in Bulgarian. So lack of choice must have been a factor too. And anyway, all this changed all of a sudden in one moment when our teacher was talking about internet poetry of all things. I gotta say, I'm not at all into poetry. I read almost none. But back in that class, we read a critical piece uh, by a poet called He Xiaoju, who in his article was analyzing four poems by this internet po poet with the genius pseudonym Li, oh. like just Li, <laughs> totally unsearchable and unfindable. And we were reading the article and reading the poems, and I was again warning to like them, but they were still boring, 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 until we got to the third poem, when something, something just clicked. I'm not sure what, but it clicked. It was a funny poem, and it was the first piece of Chinese literature that I felt talked directly to me. Let me, I mean, to, to illustrate the situation, I'm, I'm going to say the poem. Don't laugh at me. Yeah. I mean, laugh at me, but you know, I don't care. In a good so, way. Here it goes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the title is My Friend Once. He has always wanted to film Kafka's The Hunger Artist. All of his friends know about it. Moreover, he also keeps telling other people that he wants to film Kafka's The Hunger Artist. He's not a director, nor does he have any money. One time I asked him, how are you going to film it without money? He said, I don't know. <laughs> and that's it. So from there on, I started reading everything that was avail available online by this poet. And it turned out she also wrote stories and essays. I also found out that she was part of an internet literary group. So I started digging into other authors, and that's how I got into a writer called Uting, who is this avant-garde writer from the Zeros. And soon I was translating their stories and publishing, in, publishing them in this literary website, me and a good friend of mine were doing. And then after graduation, I wondered 
if I should do a master's in creative writing or in translation. And it was a tough choice, but I chose translation in the end. Mm. And then I went to China for a master's in contemporary Chinese literature. And when I came back to Bulgaria four years later, I had the whole first collection of short stories Wuxing translated. I found a publisher who was mindless enough to meet me and publish it <laughs> with lots of compromises from my side. But hey, I just wanted it to happen back then. Mm. And they published it and, it and it sold so bad. I can't even tell you. But the important thing is that it got noticed and like-minded people loved it, really loved it. And it got covered oh. in media. It showed up on national TV. And that's how people knew there's someone who is translating Chinese lit. So here Fantastic. I am now, five more, five more books behind my back and five more in the drawer. Not many, but like we say here in Bulgaria, little, but from the heart. Perfect. Rewinding slightly to Kafka, that's perfect for this episode we're doing because we're, we're talking oh, yeah. about a, a big oh, yeah. uh, adult. I was going to say... Um, fan of Chinese fan of Kafka but that seems like an understatement um and then I was going to say Kafka fangirl but I don't want to talk <laughs> about this genius old lady as if she's a girl that's not very good either um but yeah so you mentioned what a splash you made translating this poem uh from uh, Chinese to Bulgarian is there like a Chinese to Bulgarian translation scene or circle are there other people that you like um work among no, I, I mean, if, uh, if, a one man, if a one-man show constitutes a scene, I guess there's a scene, but uh, it's, it's just me right now. At least for contemporary Chinese literature, there's another guy doing ancient Chinese literature who's been pretty prolific in the last few years. Mm. And there's also been a book or two translated by other people. But for example, when I published the collection of Wuxing stories, that was back in 2013, I was the first one to translate a whole book of Chinese prose directly from Chinese in 25 years in Bulgaria. Holy moly. And since mm. then, I've been trying to keep uh, translation as my main activity, which is hard for many reasons. One of which is, of course, that literature translation is not paid well here. I mean, it's probably not paid well anywhere. But uh, I, I remember this one time I met uh, Nikki Harman, the wonderful translation, translator from Chinese to English, who has been on your show. And we started chatting and she asked me, how much do I get per page? And I told her and her response was, uh, uh, no wonder you're so thin. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's a complicated question. So almost no publishers here are actively interested in doing Chinese literature. So I have to double as a scout as well uh, to get someone to publish a book. And luckily right now I've built up some reputation. So it's at least easier to get the publisher. I'm not some random guy anymore. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, it seems that I'm the only one who is trying to do this for contemporary Chinese literature, no matter no matter what. Uh, other translations would do a project if a publisher gets a translation grant or something. Uh, I mean, I, and then I don't know. I don't want to sound like a martyr or something. I actually, pr probably sound really dumb. But yeah, translation is something I really love, and I find it so me meaningful to import stories from foreign places especially when no one else is doing it for this specific place. And I just want to do it as long as I can. I just, um, while, while you were talking, I, I was listening, but I educated myself. I Googled uh, Bulgaria population. Google's given yeah. me uh, 7 million. And yeah. I know it's not really comfortable with Scotland because Scotland is part of a bigger, bigger country and it speaks English, which other countries have as their national language. But I can kind of, I, I, we, the Scottish population is something like five or six million. So I, okay. I kind of, vaguely 
I know you didn't say it outright, but like the idea of like having a, a relatively small pond, so to speak, I can, I can, I can understand that. And it, it's, it's such a, it, the number is extra funny when you think about China, when you think about the population of some of the Chinese cities being yeah, like sure, well over but, 10 million. But then again, I remember, I think it was last year, I turned on the radio and I, um, there was this interview with the director of the uh, Kosovo National Opera. And uh, he was saying, uh, you know, Kosovo is is not as big exist is 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 not as big a country as Bulgaria. Our population is so small. So for them, Bulgaria was a big country. So, right. you know, five five or seven million. It's not it's not that so small. It's you you can it's still a have a yeah you can still have a very rich literature literature scene if the environment is right. I guess I don't know. Yeah, very true. Um... Again, thinking about some of the Chinese cities, because like it's easy enough to say um, Shanghai has fifteen or twenty million, and you're like, well, right. it's it's such a happening place. It that makes sense. But then you read about like Zhengzhou or something, uh, or somewhere where there's hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and you're like, what, what did they do with their lives? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the 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 conditions are important too. Um, getting on to slightly more specific questions. So. What is it like translating Chinese into Bulgarian? Because I'm I'm thinking C to E Chinese to English has like some specific challenges like cultural references, uh, tenses, plurals, blah blah blah, blah uh, puns as well, homophones. And um, what about Chinese to Bulgarian? Because I I know nothing about how the Bulgarian uh, language works. I mean I know it's a European language, so there might be some similarities with English. But apart from that. I'm 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 very ignorant. So what what can you tell me in the lessons? Yeah, I guess what you said about I mean there there are purely technical differences, like there are from in any two world languages. Uh, what you said about the the verbs, I guess I've always uh, thought about English um, infinitive forms of verbs. Like because I'm not a linguist, so I don't know, especially in English, how to talk about these things. But uh, let let's say. Uh, Yan Lianke, the Chinese uh, writer, has this novel called Wei Ren Min Fu, which in English is Serve the People. And I found that, uh, find that great because when you say serve the people, first of all, it sounds very natural. And you can understand that as I serve the people, you serve the people, they serve the people, we serve the people, let's serve the people to serve the people, uh, which, is, which is great and is very true to the original meaning. But you cannot do this in Bulgarian, actually. You have to choose one. So we have that book in Bulgarian. It's been translated from French. And in Bulgarian, it's let's serve the people, which, which is all right, I guess. But it doesn't sound as, um, I don't know, as strong as the, the English title. So, mm. so there's, there, there, there's one challenge for you. Another difference, which is from the other side, I think uh, Bulgarian as an, as an Eastern European language holds a very abundant supply of curse phrases which uh, really come in handy especially for example i was translating moyan's sandalwood dead and there are a lot of curse uh, phrases and insults there that i think worked very well in bulgarian and i think our goldblast translation kind of uh, softened them mm. i don't know uh, maybe because english the english language itself doesn't have very root curses and very uh, a, a big diversity of curses i don't know uh, mm. but 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 i i noticed that his translation uh, was kind of softened for example i noticed that 
both in Chinese and Bulgarian, when we're angry at something or someone, we can fuck his mother, which you cannot say. I mean, you can say it in English, but it's not natural. And it's a very natural no. in Chinese. So, for example, there was, what, there was this line in Sandalwood Dead where the, the character says, fuck your mother, uh, someone, someone. And in Howard Goldblatt's translation was just fuck you, which is all right, but it's, you know, it's different kind of. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, there, there's two examples of difference, difference between languages. I wouldn't dare to make more general statements about uh, language dif- differences. But mm. yeah. I'm going to have to slap the explicit label on this episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> to think like this is, it seemed like the obvious things you jump to for translating Tanima in English might be like, motherfucker which flips flips it around so you mistranslated yeah that's true yeah but it's it's the other person who's doing the uh, the dirty deed with that word and then there's son of son of a bitch which has a different meaning but maybe a similar vibe but son of a bitch to me like i associate that with like i don't know the wild west or something Mm. it has Mm. like english a lot of english's best really mean things to say are regional like Uh You know what I mean? Um, like in Scotland, we've got plenty awful things you could say to someone. But if nice. I put that into a Chinese novel, it'd be like, why are these Chinese people Scottish? Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, doesn't work. Doesn't work. Yeah. Um, right. So let's keep going because um, I think we're going to have a lot to say about the book and oh, the yeah. author. So uh, our author, I don't think I've said this out right. Our author is Sanshra, and the book is I Live in the Slums. And I should just uh, say. Thank you very much to Yale Books because anyone who's well, it's it's only me and you that will see this, but I'm holding <laughs> up the book, and it's uh, I live in the slums, newly pretty recent recently published by uh, Yale Yale University Books, and their office over in London mailed this review copy to me, and we were able to get the PDF to you. So thank you very much to them and anyone who's listening. There'll be a link in the show notes to go buy this book. It's it's a very nicely put together product, I must say. Um, so yeah. Lovely book, and that's our book for the show. But I think before we talk about the book, before we try and figure it out, we need to figure out Sandra, or at least introduce her, get our head, get our heads around her. Um, I kind of feel that some of the episodes I've done before, a lot of the weirder sci-fi stories, the avant-garde one about Gofei, maybe the one on Moyan where I was trying to talk about relationship with reality, have all kind of just been training for this book and. We'll find out later. Tantra actually thinks you should train. If you're not good enough at reading her books, she thinks you need to train as a reader. So that's really interesting. We'll get on to that. But let's start with the, the woman herself. So Tantra's life story is what we'll start with. Can you tell the listeners a wee bit about her life? Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, we need to stress that, I, that I'm not an expert on Tantra. Mm. I've yes. translated a story and an essay by her. And I've read around five books. And she... She has like, I don't know, tens of books. Uh, so I'm hardly competent on the subjects, but um, I guess here we go. Uh, the interesting thing is that she actually has an autobiography, which is called, or will be in English, it's Chiuguan Yundong, which will be uh, a, a movement towards light. Uh, that's how uh, her autobiography is called. And I remember uh, specifically the preface to her uh, autobiography said that she was kind of contemplating contemplating what biographies are and she was saying that every biography or autobiography is saying something about 
the person's life, but it's hardly saying anything new about life itself. So mm. she kind of manifested that she wants to do something else with her autobiography and actually say something new about life itself. So this, of course, got me thinking, I don't know, uh, about how we tell a writer's life story and also why we tell a, life, a writer's life story. Why are we interested in the life that created the works we like? What gain are we looking for? And I mean, what we know about Sanchia, you know, her parents were in trouble during the Cultural Revolution. After that, she was a seamstress for a while with her husband. Uh, I know she likes running. She runs a lot. So we can see pictures of her with tracking suits. Mm. She has a family, a husband and a son, I think. Mm. And also a very interesting brother, oh. uh, Deng Xiaoman who is a philosopher and they have this really interesting joint book, uh, which is a conversation between the two of them. Very interesting. Uh, one. Interesting. Oh yeah. And Sanshu is not her real name. Sanshu is yeah. a pseudonym. Uh, her real name is, what was it? Is it Dong, Dong Li Hua? Or am I just pulling that name out of the air? Let me see. No, it was Dong, but it was not. Oh, what Hua. was it? I'm Googling her right now. We're very professional yeah. on this show. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Xiao, Xiao Hua. Dong Xiao Hua. Dong Xiao Hua. Okay. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if we need to make a coherent story about her life. I remember bits and pieces from her autobiography. For example, I remember her story about uh, reading. She didn't have any books at home, of course, like many mm. people during the Cultural Revolution. And there was apparently this store, a bookstore in her village. And I remember she described in great detail how she went to the store and she, she would save money to, you can actually pay money to, to read in the bookstore, not buy oh. the book, but just read in the bookstore. And it was, it costed very little, but it was, it was still a lot for her because it, right. her, her family was really poor. So I remember that. And what else? I remember that she was, her autobiography is mainly about writing and what actually made her a writer and what her writing politics, we can say, uh, are. So she says in one piece that she started keeping a diary at one point, which was a way to somehow keep her inner light, she calls it, but we'll get to that later, I think. Uh, and at one point, she started writing stories, and these stories are just an extension to the to the diaries that she, she was keeping. She calls them uh, diaries of my soul, she calls them, her short stories. And I don't know, I guess literary history-wise, she's part of this avant-garde movement, but she never calls herself avant-garde. That's the, the literary critics and the literary historians that uh, label her that way among with other writers like Yuhua, like Gofei, Ma Yuan, and Sutung also. So these are a group of writers that all grew up during the Cultural Revolution and started writing in the 80s after the reform and opening up. And they are all very skeptical or even hostile to, towards tradition. So they claim that traditional storytelling uh, offers very superficial representation of humans. They represent humans as something coherent, monophonic, something intrinsically good, while in their stories, humans are mostly self-conflicting, 
schizophrenic, polyphonic, and uh, very egoistic as well. And they stress on individual experience, and they describe things that were pretty much mm, erased from the social realist writing during the Cultural Revolution before that. So they describe things as fear, anxiety, anger, sickness, egoism, confusion, repulsion, estrangement. And Sanfia says that existence itself is absurd from the start. It's insidious, scary, and it's like uh, what she says, that's her phrase, uh, uh, existing is like having snakes in one's stomach, she says, Mm. or stones in your head. But despite the absurdity of this, you still have to keep on existing. So that's why most of these stories are very dreamlike or even nightmarish. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess, it includes the whole specter of dreams. It's not just scary. It's, uh, it's spooky and it's funny. It, I guess like life itself, because I think life is spooky and funny at the same time. Yeah, I was having some pretty like uh, spooky, weird, funny dreams um, yeah. I think it wasn't last night. I think it was this morning. I had a slight lie-in, and you know when your brain's half awake, half asleep. Uh, I won't bore any of you with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's like a there's a dreamlike thing going on. There's a dark and scary thing going on. I guess we can go more into that later. Um, can, can you? What, what did you find about her life when you were reading about yeah, her? I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You read my mind because this was exactly yeah, what I was but... about to say. <laughs> so I did a little bit of reading uh, as prep for this this episode because i really wanted to get it right so i read a lot of her interviews which are most they're all all online i read them so they're all from like the last five six years they're all quite recent because her career goes back quite far but then i went on to um jstar and google scholar and well um using my cunning cunning means um i managed to get a couple of pdfs from like academic journals which had essays on tantra and the interesting thing is these were from way back they're both from the 90s so they were a little bit the picture of tantra they were painting was a little bit different um and they maybe had some focuses that have since sort of been dropped um so like yeah you were saying how much do we need to focus on someone's upbringing maybe a lot maybe maybe not at all um and the question of like like whether or not she would have political views we'd probably not be too bothered about looking at politics in her stories now because we can see they're not there but that, that idea, I think, has probably been collectively discarded over time. So one of those essays looked at like her upbringing to try and see some sort of political dimension in her writing. I think also in one of her interviews, uh, she did talk about her childhood as well, although I'm having trouble in my memory separating all of them. But I think we both watched a video called Stubborn Dirty Snow. Uh, YouTube. Yeah, did you, you watch that? Your memory. Yeah, I did, but it was like two years ago, so I don't oh, remember right. it much. Okay. But... Yeah, that's a, a recording from when she went over to the States and she it was some like Asian American literary organization and she spoke there. And I listened to the audio of that as well. So it all sort of blurs together. But um, I remember, yeah, what you were saying, her parents were persecuted um, during like the, the Mao era. But the irony is like like so many, they were very devoted um, Marxists. And the word that Tan Shui used to describe them was spiritual. Um, maybe not in the religious sense, like we'd usually use spiritual, but they were very interested in like the things of the mind. Well, when she was growing up under them, they gave her a lot of reading. Um, Everyone had to do a lot of reading of Marx and other sort of Western Western literature and philosophy and ideas. 
And even though her, I don't get the impression she's like a hardcore Marxist or anything, but she's, I think she said she was really glad to have that spiritual dimension as a reader, you know, not consuming TV. And, you know, she never mentions like reading, uh, I don't know, Miles Red Book or anything. I guess that probably wouldn't come under spiritual in her mind. Um, but I think she, she related that to those other writers of her generation. She said she thinks that those writers in the early part of their career are some of the best literature that's come out of China. And she thinks it's because her generation had that sort of spiritual influence before um, kind of like ideological insanity took over China in the Cultural Revolution. And then before more consumerist, popular, popular? lowbrow, more consumer and lowbrow um, mm. culture took over after the country opened up. Um, so yeah, that aspect, she talks about that aspect of her childhood, but it's as a reader, and that's like a common theme. She's always talking about readers. So yeah, that's the only thing I've really gathered about her life story. I think also, though, in her literary career, her life story as a writer, I noticed something. Um, so those early essays, people were trying to write about her politics. That seems to have been abandoned. I don't think she's ever seems to have been directly concerned with politics. Um, at least on the surface level. But a thing that didn't appear in an early interview I read and seems to have appeared more and more recently is a focus on Western philosophy. We haven't mentioned, but she's certainly um, she's certainly not humble or she certainly isn't afraid of saying really bold stuff about her own work. And I noticed in recent essays, she basically says her literature is going to solve a bottleneck in Western culture. She say, she's been saying that her, as someone herself who is influenced by Western literature and ancient Chinese culture, these are her own words, um, she's going to be able through her literature to solve the bottleneck and the fundamental problem of Western culture, society and philosophy. And when you first read that, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? But <laughs> the more I've listened to her, I don't necessarily think she's going to change the world, but I appreciate what she's trying to do. And I can see how these seem this like this literature that you could interpret as random and silly mm. at a surface level once you see how that connects with her ideas and once you take her advice and read it slowly you can kind of see what she's getting at and it does feel quite stirring to me anyway um i think we've really got we've kind of blended into the next question now her literary project and persona yeah. do you want to uh, say anything about that there were a lot of things that came up came to my mind when you were talking. Hmm. Uh, I guess she, she's definitely not, not humble. And I've read a lot of essays and interviews. She says that her writing is the best Chinese literature that exists right now. And yep, yep. <laughs> it, 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 it sounds very, what's the, what's the English word? I mean, um, There's a lot of English words for that. Um, right, right, right. Uh, arrogant? I guess so, arrogant. But I think that when you're an artist, it's actually a good thing to... Mm an extreme idealist if you're a politician not so much but if mm. you're an artist it's it, it's even it's even a good thing i think and whether or not you and your writing could solve some actual problem or whether or not your writing is actually considered by other people to be the best or even good believing that it is is, is something that is important for 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 time she is writing i think it's it's kind of her writing is engulfed in that in that feeling and uh, there, there's a lot of idealism in it and uh, and i think that's that's interesting about it and another thing is that uh, th there's a lot of there are a lot of differences uh, indeed between 
different periods of her writing. And she has said that she doesn't like her early stories anymore, although I consider them very interesting, mm. maybe because I haven't still gotten to the high level of uh, awareness that she's gotten to right now. But for example, I consider her first novella, Huang uh, Nijie, which is Yellow Mud Street, uh, really interesting, really good. I like, I like it a lot. And yeah, about her literary project, I guess she considers herself part of this world team of writers among Dante, Shakespeare, Cervantes, Giotte, Borges, Kafka, and Italo Calvino, and so on, that are dealing with humans' mental experience. And she does claim that all of her writing is, com is coming from inside of her not from anything outside. So she uses objects and images from the outside to describe the, the mental picture of the human condition, I guess. And I, I guess we can say a lot of things about, about her literary purpose. But when I was reading, uh, when I was preparing for this episode, two things uh, kind of seemed the most important to me not that not that they are most important but for, the first thing is that that innate light that she's talking about so what she claims is that uh, outside world like tradition and communicating with people and society basically will sooner or later diminish this inner light so what the artist should do is keep their inner light and this is done through the process of creation. And the process of creation is connected to the other important term that I think it's uh, crucial for understanding her writing. She talks in one of her essays about the process of transformation. She, as I mentioned, has a lot of books and she has a really, really thick book about Kafka, like just about Kafka. And she uh, interprets and analyzes different novels and stories of his so she has has about she has this piece about a short story by Kafka called in English I think a report to an academy I don't know if you read it but it's a really really interesting story I think it's actually a proto King Kong story in that it's about the monkey and the monkeys speaking about the process of it becoming human so they found it somewhere and they took it to the human world and they put it in the circus or something like that. And slowly it became senient. And the, the main point here is that human, like the human condition is that we have an animal site and then we have a civilized site. And these are always in conflict all the time. And artists like her are striving to transcend their animal site, but never completely on the contrary, on the contrary, they, try to not lose touch with the animal side. And for artists like her, it's a very fucked up situation because according to her, when you're an artist, everyone who hasn't transcended their animal side and is just following their animal instinct pisses you off. Mm -hmm. And everyone who claims to have transcendent and acts like there are no animal instincts in them is just a phony. So they piss you off as well. So basically, all of, all of humanity pisses you off when you are an artist. So, so that's why <laughs> she, she claims that sadness or, or sorrow are something that the artist uh, inevitably feels. 
and it's something that creation comes from. That's interesting because I think animals are going to come up again when we're talking about our stories. And oh, yeah. in some of the like background reading I've done, th- I guess there seems to be like a theme of her trying to bring together opposites or mm-hmm. um, defuse opposites. Like what I was saying, where she she's said outright she's going to be some sort of a bridge in her. There's some sort of a union or a bridge uh, of Chinese and Western modern Western traditions and ancient Chinese traditions. Um, so yeah, it seems to be a recurring theme for her. Um, a couple of things I remembered to say um, as you were talking, um, you mentioned you rattled off a list of authors there and that's like not a yeah. random list. Those are like the authors she's always quoting and citing and referring to. So she's got like her own canon and I guess some of them seem to call it more than others. I think Kafka seems to be maybe like at the whether or not she thinks he's the best, but she seems he seems to be one of the ones she mentions the most. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, so the fact that you mentioned Kafka earlier when you were talking about poetry is really um, it's a nice synchronicity. Um, yeah, and, and also yeah. Lucian actually. Mm, uh, she mentioned, yeah. she talks about uh, a lot about Lucian, and I think she considers him the only Chinese author that is actually worth something. Everyone else is uh, like bullshit to her. Uh, Lucian comes up so much on the show. I don't know if that's just because it's a Chinese literature podcast, but yeah, yeah. Um, it's always yeah. I'm always happy to hear his name. Um, <laughs> the other thing I forgot to mention is so the fact that she recently started talking about solving Western philosophy. She mentioned in that dirty, stubborn snow kind of speech she gave that she'd recently started reading it. So that might explain why um, it's become part of her kind of idea system recently. Because I think I think we can mention that she only spends whenever she sits down to write, which is once a day, she sits down for an hour, she writes just I think with just the pen, I think, and it doesn't go back and edit. Uh, I, I'm guessing editors might fix her uh, typos, but that's it. She just sits down for an hour, and then she says, "Yeah." So as you can imagine, that gives me hours of free time, and I've been spending that the last few years reading Kant, Schopenhauer, blah blah, blah. and then she goes and rattles off a load of these European philosophers' names. So I think that's where that is coming from. It's um, and who knows? It might be something she's doing alongside her, her brother, the philosopher. I don't know. But yeah, um, the next thing I've got lined up here is her stories and how she wants them to be read. But we have another sec, a whole section devoted to how to read the book. So I think we could just introduce the basics here. What are her stories like? You've, you've already said they're kind of dreamy, but mm. and I would say just based on my own experience you can't if you go into them even like you go into reading like a normal weird avant-garde writer at least for me you won't enjoy them you have to go in for me anyway i have to go in again with the right mindset and read them a particular way to get anything out of them because i'm like my surface level reading i was like these are this is like a surrealism that i don't enjoy reading this this is just depressing and then on rereading i was like oh wait i get it this is kind of different and exciting but i don't know is that your experience or how would you characterize the stories how do you think is a good way to read them could you say anything about that that was actually exactly my experience when i first read sanskrit which was back in china when i was doing my master's um i just uh, i felt nothing it was Mm. it spoke it spoke nothing to me so i read a couple of stories uh i think i landed the book from the library and just returned it and then I guess I read some articles about her and I had this colleague of mine who was really into Tanshue. So uh, when we spoke, she would 
babble on about Sanskrit, Sanskrit, Sanskrit. So I decided to give her a second chance. And I don't know, maybe I've read some stuff uh, because I used to have a very narrow literary taste. What I liked used to be like very specific kind of literature. And I think back then when I was in China, it kind of expanded and I started uh, to be more open to different kinds of literature. And I guess I just started being able to read them as some kind of weird fables, her stories. And uh, she actually quotes the Bible as one of the uh, books that she likes because uh, it, it, again, to her and to a lot of other interpreters um, too, uh, the Bible is about the inner experience of, uh, of humans. It's, it doesn't describe real things. It describes the, the, the human soul. So, so that is what, uh, what she likes about it. Uh, so I guess, yeah, it's, uh, they are very absurdist stories, meaning that there's a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding. There is the impossibility of understanding the other, which I, which I like. So like there are, uh, there's a lot of back and forth between characters that you don't, you, you can just see how these two people are standing next to each other and they're communicating, but they're, they're actually not. Which to me, for example, is a, a very good allegory for for communication uh, as a whole. I mean, w- w- me and you right now we're communicating and we're saying stuff and uh, we think that we understand each other, but but do we? Uh, I, I guess we don't exactly, and and maybe we don't fully understand each other at all. Uh, so so when I read her stories, I don't. Uh, I mean, apparently, I don't get everything. Uh, I cannot form a coherent meaning out of her stories. It's more, it's more like I read a, a, a poem. Again, I don't read many poetry, but when I read poems, like Sanskrit stories are like long poems, meaning it's immersing in the atmosphere, atmosphere and, ration, and rationally and emotionally getting only bits and pieces of meaning. Basically, like like life, you know, li- life is not always interesting. It's it's not always me- meaningful, but but sometimes something clicks and uh, you get a sense of meaning. And yeah, some just some words and images strike a chord. It's when it's when listening to a to a music piece as well, and uh, and suddenly they make me realize something intellectually or emotionally. Mm, and I guess that that's how I read them. So uh, it, this is probably not very mature way of reading them i guess she won't be very happy with that way of reading i guess she would want me to 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 be more immersed and like you said uh, have a specific mindset so i can understand the whole of them but i still can't but even though i can't i still enjoy the experience because i think they're very weird and uh, very mm, they're absurdist in a way that i like and they really tell me some things about my life and life in general that kind of resonate with me. And that's enough for me to keep reading her. Yeah, I guess I'll try and sneak in uh, mentioning mirrors because this, this is something I didn't think about upon even my secondary read. But um, mm. in some of the writing about her and things she says, there's a lot of discussion of the mirror. So you, you were saying that when, when two people are talking, the default are kind of like common sense understanding of a conversation is that they're exchanging information, but really they're just, they're talking to their idea of the other person or something like that. All communication is kind of like imperfect from the start. So there's that idea of like the other thinking you're looking at the other and really you're just looking in the mirror. 
or there's like a more positive idea of the mirror you could have. So there was a question in that stubborn, dirty snow video where I think the person asking the question was a Chinese person who had moved to America and was talking about feeling kind of detached, disillusioned and um, wanting, feeling nostalgic for, for her homeland, China. And feeling like that's how she should, you know, if she wants to learn about herself, she should, she should look to her own culture. And Sancho, she wasn't mean or anything, but she said, no, if you want to know yourself, this is a brilliant opportunity for you. You should look at the other culture because the other culture is a mirror through which you can learn about yourself. And she said that I, Sancho, I have read all the Western classics, blah, blah, blah. And I have learned about my myself and my, you know, my Chinese heritage that I bring, blah, 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 blah. And like on one hand, you might on the surface level, you might think this is just an intellectual trying to say something and sound clever. But um, without thinking too deeply about it, I was like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me because um, I've, I've been a Scottish person living in England and I've been a Western person living in China. And I realized growing up in Scotland as a Scottish person, you never really think about what it means. And even if you do think about what it means, you have nothing to measure it against. And kind of the similar thing, like, you grew up in a developed, you know, developed first world Western country and you think, oh gosh, I'm lucky. But your idea of why it might be based on pictures of starving children in Africa you've seen on the TV, not based on another country where most people aren't quite so well off. And then, you know, then you actually live there and the reality has nothing to do with the media, you know, the media images on TV or the stories in the classroom. So yeah, like I didn't really know what my own background meant until I left it. So what she's saying, this might, this makes me think of other things where like at, at a glance these very abstract ideas might seem to have no bearing on reality but Tantra goes on and on in her uh, talk and her writing about reality and how important it is oh, and I've really gone down a wormhole there but yeah uh, the mirror and knowing yourself in the mirror that's what I was trying to talk about do you have anything to say there or shall we go on to the next question yeah I guess you mentioned that her writing is uh, like automatic so she sits and she just writes whatever comes to mind and she like she's very disciplined in it so it's really every day and uh, it sounds like something if if me me or you do it like we just sit and write something it, it wouldn't like it wouldn't be of interest of interest to anyone really but uh, she does it and she does it every day and uh, I guess here we are a Bulgarian and a Scot talking about her so uh, it must have some meaning, I guess. Uh, and yeah, I guess she she do, she doesn't care. She doesn't care much about about meaning, uh, which is sometimes annoying. Like uh, she might seem like someone who really isn't trying to have a conversation, but it it can be very enlightening too. I guess if it strikes the right chord, it can pull you out of a belief or a state that you haven't been conscious about it about until then. Like you said, so. One of the effects that her stories have on me is that they strip me of stuff that I haven't realized I've been wearing, be it bias or prejudices or just inclinations or the way I see things. And yeah, and some of the stories we're going to discuss did exactly that to me. Oh, actually. excellent. That's good, because I was yeah. about to say, give me an example, but we can, right. you can give me an example later. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, let's keep moving. Uh, next question. Her reception home and abroad. So I've got something to say here. So as of yeah. like whenever I started this podcast, I suddenly started looking in bookshelves. Uh, actually, no, before I started the podcast, I was looking on bookshelves in any bookshop for Chinese books because I'd been, I'd been living there for a few years, was sad to have left. So any glimpse of anything Chinese on the streets, the streets of Scotland or 
down in England. I have to check it out immediately. And I remember noticing there was a lot of these books by this author, San Shua, and I was like, who is this? I've never heard of this author before. And from reading the blurbs, I could see she was a woman writer and she wrote sort of abstract stories. And I could see from the covers, the cover designs were often like shapes, also quite abstract. Didn't really know what to make of it, didn't look into it. And after getting about a year into the podcast, I started hearing more about her and realized some people hold her in really high regard and she seems to be different. So that's what led me to her. But yeah, it just it, so it seems like her, at least from what I've seen in English, her reception is in publishing pretty good. A lot of her works have been brought into translation and she seems to have a lot of readers who aren't readers of Chinese lit. They're readers of like, I don't know, um, world literature and translation or avant-garde literature. So if she thinks of herself as being outside like the canon of Chinese writers like Yuhua Moyan, she seems to have achieved that in English based on what I've seen. But what, I don't know, do you have any feelings about her reception uh, outside of China? Mm, not, not really, I guess. I know she's pretty big in Japan. Like uh, in, in Japan, her, her works are like trans- translated a lot. She has a lot of translations in Japanese and she, she talks about it with, uh, like she has interviews translated actually from Japanese to, to Chinese that I've read. Meaning that uh, she she gave an interview to a Japanese yeah. person and uh, you know that right. Uh, so so yeah, I know that she's pretty big in Japan. I know she recently, I think last year, she was long listed for the Man Booker International mm. Prize, which was pretty big. Like mm. uh, her novel uh, Love in the New Millennium, which I haven't read, but I'm uh, I've been wanting to. Uh, so so yeah, her. But I don't know. I don't know if her books sell well or something. Uh, but uh, from what I've read, uh, they seem to be very interesting for a lot of readers yeah i don't know i can't say much what what i can say about her reception in china is that uh she seems really pretty big there and uh the first story that i read was in this um anthology of contemporary chinese literature that i bought so it was uh an anthology of stories or novellas written uh from the 80s onwards and there were about 20 authors and sanshia was one of them so uh, it was the anthology was meant for uh, university reading, so meaning that Sanshio is being studied in the academics, right? And I know she's she has a very uh, devoted uh, like mass of readers and fans in in China, and she she publishes a lot. I don't know. Uh, I, I know that one critic has said that if you read one of her books, you you don't need to read the rest of them because they're all the same. So, so she has those kind of critics as well. Mm. Uh, but yeah, she gets published. W- what I've noticed is that she, she really keeps, keeps to herself, herself a lot, although she's a member of the Chinese Writers Association. Oh, right. Uh, I know, for example, when I get invited to these conferences in China, they always ask us to fill uh, this questionnaire and they ask us what writers would we like to meet. And every time I, I fill in this questionnaire, I always write Sanshu, 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 mm. but she never shows up. To any of them, uh, so um, yeah, uh, but, but I guess that fits her persona as a whole. Who else have you written in? Sorry, uh, in, in that form. Who else's names did you write? Well, I really wanted to meet Achang because uh, I translated his two, uh, his three novellas: the King of uh, King of Chess, King of Children, and King of Trees. Uh, and I think they're great. And I was actually looking for the rights because I didn't know who holds the rights, and this was. 
a really, really long process of finding out who, who holds the rights. And uh, it involved a Chinese conceptual artist coming to Bulgaria and posing with the dress made of uh, paper Gillette packages. <laughs> who actually knew the son of Achon or something like that. And oh, I, was, I, was I able to find him? But yeah, I never met him. Uh, he never shows up as well. And I guess, I don't know, Yuhua. Uh, I have a funny story about that because the first time I got invited to uh, one of these conferences, uh, I was really surprised because the only time I communicated with the Chinese Writers Association was I was asking them about their translation grant and they were replying and I was really, really, I was getting more and more annoyed from the procedure and at the end I ended up say, saying that this is a really dumb procedure and I don't know why they, they keep it and uh, I, I will never ever apply for it and I thought that this is the end of my chances for getting a, a translation grants from China uh, for all time but a month later I get this invitation letter oh. there, will be, there will be this translation conference in uh, Changchun which is north of Beijing mm-hmm. And you're invited to take part of the, this translation conferences. Uh, and we buy your ticket and we uh, will uh, arrange a hotel and everything. So I'm like, yeah, why not? So I go there and I arrive at the airport and they pick us up and there are a lot of other translators. And I, I'm like, great, yeah, no, this, this will be fun. And I arrive at the hotel and someone says, at six o'clock in the evening, you can have dinner at the buffet. So I'm okay. Uh, and at six o'clock I go downstairs to have dinner and i uh, just pour myself a plate of rice and then i lift my head and i see a familiar back silhouette and this uh, this silhouette turns turns sideways and i and i see that it's moyan oh shit <laughs> and i'm like okay okay <laughs> what's what's happening and then and then uh, yuhua was there as well so i was able to meet him and talk about his stories and translating his stuff and uh yeah that's how i got to meet some of the chinese writers and it's been going on every two years since then awesome yeah glad i asked yeah okay um right here we're, we, we've had like the medium difficulty now we're going into hard hard mode because um, yeah. we're going to talk about i live in, i live in the slums so I have not prepared set questions this time, which I've never right. never done that before. I've always had a set oh. question, but this time I've just got some keywords that we can go through. Um, uh, if we do get stuck in a bottleneck, I'll just bring up the next keyword. So um, we're going to look at four stories because this is a book of short stories. Um, first one we're going to do <clears throat> is Story of the Slums, which is where the title of the anthology, well, not anthology, title gets the title. <laughs> where the collection gets its title from. Um, second one is The Swamp. Third one is The Old Cicada. The fourth one is Crow Mountain. And Story of the Slums is a lot longer than all the other ones. I feel like Story of the Slums, if you if you spaced out the text and made the text big enough, it might be viable as like a novella. It's a pretty long, short story. Oh, yeah, it was, it was about 80 pages, I think. Yeah. So let's yeah. start with that one. Um, I'll I'll try and describe it. And then if you think I've yeah. missed anything, you can fill in and then we can talk about all the actual madness that's going on. Yeah, I don't know if you could, we, could, we can talk about missing something really, but mm. I just think it's interesting to compare interpretations of this kind of text. Yeah, that right. That would be a good way to do it. Interpretations, as usually, 
they speak more about the interpreter than about the text itself. Uh, no, now you, now you mentioned that you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can show again your your bias, your inclinations, and it can make you realize that your understandings are about things are artificial and obtained. I guess. You know, I have not thought of that. That how we might have really different ideas about these four stories. Uh, I almost have no doubt that we will. Mm, okay. Yeah, well, that's what I'll do. Uh, how about we take a turnabout? Uh, for this one, I'll tell, I'll describe what I think it's about. You tell me how wrong I am. And then story number two, we can swap. How about that? All right. All right. Okay. Let's do it. Right. So story of the slums. Um, we're in some sort of a weird underworld or hell. It seems to be adjacent to other sort of planes of existence. And we're following a little rat-like being. Uh, he's narrating the story in first person, and he's in this slum, some sort of an area where what appears to be mostly people are living, and he goes from house to house living in their stoves. And there's not really any sort of plot progression. There is a little bit of character progression, it seems, because he seems to question exactly who he is and how he got there. He doesn't make reach any conclusions about how he got there, but we, the reader, might be able to piece stuff together. He does seem to reveal more information about what he is. He just like at first you're just guessing it's a rat based off what he's doing, where he's living. But then he says something like, "I'm a little bit like a rat. I'm a little bit bigger than a rat. People call me a rat. I'm not really a rat." And then he meets another one of his kind. Uh, he talks about his ancestors living frozen in some freezing grassland. Which, if you read uh, Wolf Totem, you might think that they're is it gophers? There's some little mammal in Wolf Totem described as living in the Mongolian uh, grasslands that seems like he might be an ancestor from. I also got the feeling he might be a person who fell down into this hell and was reborn into a different shape. That seemed to be hinted at, but it doesn't really read like a mystery, a, a mystery, because there's so much insanity going on. The thing that made me made me think it might be hell is because he's constantly getting hurt. Um, it's almost like a stream of consciousness of a guy getting whacked and bullied and chased and burned and frozen. Um, he seems to, well, I'm saying he, this creature seems to be possibly genderless. Um, men, he mentions not being attracted to the opposite sex or gender, but he's not attracted to anything or anyone. So seems to be kind of genderless and sexless, maybe never born at all. There seems to be a lot of poverty. I mean, it seems a bit bland to say the novel is like some sort of hell version of a Chinese, a poor Chinese neighborhood. But that was what I was thinking first time I was reading, like the conditions that people live in are awful. So it might, I wonder if it's some kind of meditation on poverty and slums. And the other thing I, I noticed was like uh, the idea of verticality, because there's some hints that he might have committed suicide or fallen down a hole in a pond in a past life. And then in the story, he ends up in a tunnel, another level down. And I know that in her other works, there's in that like she's got a whole book called or a story called Vertical Motion, right. and there's a lot of verticality in other stories. Um, so that seems to be going on. Something's going on with that. That's all I've got. Um, I do think on my second reading, things still annoyed me. Um, like there's a scene where there's a chicken that can like send blasts of heat through a room by jumping. That just reminded me of playing <laughs> Crash Bandicoot when I was about six. Um, some of it just seemed weird for the sake of being weird i'm sure sancho would deny that outright but this was out of these four this was maybe my least favorite for that reason some of it i just could not okay. see why it had to be so long 
um, and full of random episodes. But it was much better on the second reading for me. Yeah, anyway. I think I, I, I blacked out through some of the parts as well. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it, maybe it was because I couldn't con- concentrate, but maybe it was because it wasn't uh, written or translated well, I, I don't know. But yeah, I, I think that was interesting... Well, for, first of all, about the, the gender that you say, that uh, this creature, whatever it is, is uh, genderless. It is actually worth noting that, noting that there aren't really any indications to its gender, mm. except one, oh. which is on, on page 70, where the creature, which is the narrator, na- narrator, says, I was a son of this mystical land. Right. But because the the whole story doesn't have any indication of the gender otherwise, I looked at the original uh, sentence and there it's actually Arza, which is mostly used like as son, but it also means child. So I guess uh, to keep the ambiguity, which I think it's a major motif in uh, Sanchez stories, a better translation here would be I was a child of this mystical land mm-hmm. to keep the ambiguity. And if you remember uh, the first time I recommended a story by Sanchez to you, it was a hut in the mountain, I think. Do you remember the gender of the narrator in this one? From what I remember... It was unspecified, but I was assuming it was a girl because I was assuming it was someone similar to Sancho. Whereas this one, it's mostly unspecified, but I was assuming it was male. Is that right? Very interesting. Well, I don't know because they're unspecified. Mm, They really are. And they're they're purposely unspecified, I I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe that comes to question our perception of gender, I guess. What do we consider as male and female. Why do we think that the narrator uh, of the hut, uh, hut in the mountain is uh, female? And why do we think this one is a male? Mm. And another thing is that first, I thought that the creature is a dog. Mm. And then they started calling him a rat. And then I thought, I thought that it was a rat. But, right. but then uh, after maybe 30 or 40 pages, I thought that is a dog again because something in the description in the first pages uh, because it describes that it goes into people's home and, and children play with it, which would be, would be weird for a rat or a mouse or something like that. Right. But it's, it will make sense if it's a dog. And mm-hmm. that's why the confusion about its identity uh, and it, if it's a dog, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't claim that it's a dog, but uh, if it is a dog, everyone calls him rat or mouse. And it's very confusing and it's sometimes very similar to the experience, I guess, we, we get living uh, in society because society tends to label us somehow and tell us what we are. And of course, as members of society, we tend to get influenced by, the, by these labels. I mean, we're not completely independent of it uh, and hence the, the, the identity confusion. Mm. And I think this speaks a lot to, to that situation. I tend to interpret the story that way. And also, the dog or whatever it is seems to be striving towards civility somehow. I mean, it's pretty good-natured somehow. It tries to act good. It cannot mm. always act good because it's an animal, so it has the animal instincts in it. 
So sometimes it will do mischief and it will, uh, people will scold it or will uh, um, hit it or beat it. Uh, but it somehow is trying to, again, transcend its nature. It, it's trying to, to, to be better or it's trying to go, as you said, up the vertical line, whatever, yeah. whatever that. And, but, but the slums being a horrible place and the people who live there being ho horrible people keep pulling him back or keep pulling it back. Uh, they call it rats, although it's a dog, which is, I don't know, a little more superior animal to rats. I mean, we don't consider it dirty or stuff like that. Uh, they keep calling it mouse, calling it mouse. And so this to me is somehow an, an illustration of what Sanchez is saying in her essays that everyone or at least artists have this inner light in them, inner ambition to be better, to do better. But our environment kind of pulls us back, pulls us, draws us back to, to help, to the place where things are horrible and people are horrible and uh, everything is dangerous and everything is unknown and uh, everything could happen, which is really the, the, the epitome of hell. Like anything could happen. This is the most scary thing that I can imagine uh, in, in life. So this, this is one thing that uh, I'm thinking about the story. I don't know. A thing I should mention, this is really silly, um, but it's about the idea of hell. I noticed on this on my second reading, this uh, creature rat. I'll just say it's a rat. Uh, the rat keeps getting like knocked out, and he's yeah. forced to eat poisonous things a few times, and he'll, he'll always just black out. But he never dies. Um, this creature seems to be unkillable. And I was actually remembering this is going to be a very specific cultural reference. Did you ever watch the Eric Andre show? No, I don't think so. Uh, it's like a. A kind of a, a absurdist, um, so, somewhat edgy sketch show by this comedian in, in the US. And uh, there's a skit he would do where he would go on, he would he would go about in the public as a character called Craft Punk, who's like one of the da Daft Punk guys with the helmet, but he's <laughs> okay. wearing like Craft Macaroni Cheese colors, <laughs> and he speaks in a robot voice, and he just does stupid stuff. But there's a bit where he's he's been annoying someone on, I think it's like the New York subway. And he just pulls out a toy gun and goes, did you know I cannot die? And you hear the bullets bouncing off his helmet. And it's, you'd think it would be a very like, you'd think if that was you, you'd be like, you can't die. That's great. But it's really disturbing. And like, when I was reading this, I was like, hang on a minute. This rat should be being killed by the poison. Why isn't he dying? I wasn't, like I was happy for him when he wasn't being killed off. But it just kind of added to the hellishness that there's never any end. And like you're saying, he's never also any attempt he makes to, I remember that it's described that there's some steps up to a village above. Right. And yeah. I forget if he makes it to the village. If he does, it's a horrible, like it, it's, he can't stay there. And it, other times he does, he gets like yeah, dragged back. Does, yeah. Yeah. Right. Hmm. right. Yeah. And uh, the thing about, um, the thing about ancestors was really interesting to me because that's how the story ended, actually, mm. uh, with the description of the ancestor who used to be in this great, vast plain, which was really beautiful and light, but it was really cold. Mm -hmm. So because it was cold, its ancestors moved to the slums where it's terrible and life is terrible, but it's not cold anymore. And that's why it was constantly described how it 
went to houses and it slept on the stove to keep itself warm. So, so, so that's what, what, I, uh, what I'm thinking about this one. And of course, I could be wrong. Uh, but uh, humanity used to live in, in the open, uh, I guess. And we can take that literally, literary or uh, metaphorically. And because there were certain inconveniences there, like we were cold, we built the slums. And the slums are not perfect, uh, definitely not perfect. It's, they're horrible. And uh, in many aspects, they're uh, way worse than the plains that we used to inhabit. But they're warm. Mm. And so uh, because that's important for us, maybe objectively, it's not the most important thing, but for some strange reason, it is for us. So we choose to live in the slums just to keep ourselves warm. And warmth is, again, something metaphorical, I think. It could be anything that we choose, something that we built our civilization on. So, or it could be, for example, technology. It could be Facebook. It could be Instagram. Mm. Uh, that we uh, somehow think that improves our lives. But, and it does improve our lives, but at the same time, it destroys them. It, uh, it, it uh, builds this hell among, uh, in our civilization. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I mean, that's an interpretation. Is that certainly, it's not uh, necessarily what I think about Facebook or Instagram, but that's a possible interpretation, I think. Yeah. Like, uh, we all live in the slums. It's my... Uh, haven't migrated from the grasslands yeah no you absolutely read my mind um i was just about to say yeah i i think it's great that i can talk to show guests and put the show out online on the internet but it hurts my eyes and it warps my brain so it's not even that it kind of ruins my life on some abstract level as if like a living animal this is not good for me um having these big headphones on for hours clogs up my ears with wax (laughs) Um, so I might not live in a slum, but like I'm being degraded yeah. um, constantly by these complications of all these things that are, we built up around ourselves. You eat poison all the time and you survive. I yeah, guess. I do like yeah. beer. Yeah. And another, thing is, another thing that it, uh, this story illustrates well, I think, is the horror of living amongst other creatures. And uh, the, again, it's the thing that you, you, you don't know what other people would do. Like in a civilized society, in a, in a more upper uh, level of this vertical structure that you were describing, maybe you would know what to expect from other people. But in the slums where we are, uh, you don't. And there are several occasions uh, in this story that, uh, that are really very kind of, they're funny and scary at the same time. They're horrifying. For example, I've, I've, I have some passages here that I'm going to try to read. So there was, okay, page 73. Behind me, she shouted abuse, saying that if she saw any trace of me, she would kill me. How had my relationship with her evolved to this point? At first, when I drifted to her home, she had been so genial. She not only fed me well, she also arranged for me to sleep in a jar, saying this would keep the flames from lapping at my hair. But before long, I experienced her misophobia. And it happens just like that. It, there is no reason for her changing her mind and changing her attitude. And I think this is very, it speaks to me because this is what I experience very often in, uh, in society and uh, amongst other people. And there are several occasions of, of this thing about that you just don't understand why people are mean or good to you. You don't mm. know. Mm-mm-mm. 
Yes. Yeah, there's a thing that I guess it's not unique to Sancho's writing, but this seemingly abs absurd things yeah. in modernist literature are actually mm -hmm. trying to get to some um, deeper truth, or they're saying something that you can't say with plain realism. Uh, there's some kind of quote, I, I forget exactly where I saw it, I'm sure it was related to Sancho, but there's a million different quotes that say roughly the same thing um, by yeah. abstracting or departing a bit from reality you get beneath its surface and we'll get onto this later but um i know Sancho really hates postmodernism because it's not it's it's about the complete detachment of your representations in reality the the mm. supposedly fun game a postmodern writer plays is not dealing with narratives and signifiers and not reality and not getting to the heart of reality and supposedly at least and as evidenced in our readings Sancho is trying to say something about what it's like to be alive in the world um you mentioned ending on a reference to the uh, the ancestors, the little fuzzy creatures being frozen to death. I'll read that and then we can go on to the next story because it is really good. Cool. And yeah, I, we mentioned the translation is sometimes a bit wonky. I kind of agree with you there, but I think sometimes it's also really striking and this is one of the striking bits. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that, hits, that hits really, really mm. hard with me. Yeah. yeah, here we go. The swans were my home. This home wasn't exactly what I wanted. Everything was difficult and perils lurked at every turn. But this was the only home I had. My only option was to stay here. I used to have a homeland, but I couldn't go back to my homeland. It was useless to yearn for her. I stayed in these slums of mine. My eyes were turbid, my legs thin and weak, my innards poisoned over and over again. I endured, I endured. That gigantic eagle in the sky over my native place appeared in my mind and brought me strength. All right. Mm, nice, okay. nice. I like that. Yeah. All right. Can Next. I, yes. Uh, say something. I was I was thinking about something else though. Uh, the, another thing that I liked was how the creature, the, the narrator, uh, swaps uh, homes all the time. Mm. So uh, I think that's a I don't know maybe it's a good uh, representation of uh, identity. How we kind of uh, what is the word? inhabit inhabit different identities and it's not always something that happens naturally sometimes we just do it because environment makes us do it and i have uh, a quote here from uh, page 77 that i would like to read i stood at the side of the pond thinking of all kinds of things I would soon freeze to death. My top priority was to save my life by finding a home to move into. I noticed a house with a door that wasn't shut tight. And I thought, and I thought I'd go in and deal with any, consequence, any consequences later. It's too real. <laughs> and I, I really think that's what, what we do in life. And that's how we actually form I, our identities. We just, uh, we're just freezing and uh, we take whatever identity will warm us in yep. the specific situation that we're in yeah yeah and i guess like if you're in a job interview it is all about your identity really not really your experience um, yeah. you have to link pretend that the two are into intimately linked and then it's only worse now i mean you say this someone who's a, a host who has to be the face of a social media and who's that has helped me get myself out there out of the cold so to speak uh, indirectly so yeah the whole thing is um it would be too far to say it's an act but yeah it's kind of feels like running for shelter in a way like mm. 
Mm. Having, like in my case, having come back from like a very cushy in- English teacher or foreign teacher in China job back to back to the slums, back to a much more um, uh, a reality where you know I'm not I'm not in the cushy job anymore. Went into a master's degree. Was thinking about where does the rest of my life go? And yeah, um, it is sort of like go 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 go. Find a proverbial stove. Find some right. find a niche. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's go on to the next story. Before、uh, we go to the、yes. next story, can we make a pee pause? I want to pee. Yeah, I, probably a good idea for me too. Yeah, let's do it. Okay.、Um, so we have one part. We have Dylan Levi King here in the、um, Discord.、Ah. So Dylan,、Hi. we're going away to the bathroom. Our podcast <laughs> listeners will never know because I will have edited this. Edited. <laughs> I'm back. Yeah, me too. Okay. Our next story is. The swamp. Okay. So it's your turn. You tell me and the listeners what it's all about, and I'll see how different my picture of it is. Oh man. Okay. <laughs>、uh, because I I haven't really used my English in a while. I mean, I read every day, but、uh, I hardly ever speak it anymore.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, of all the writers we could have talked, you invited me <laughs> to talk about Tanshue. So, and your listeners will have to endure my my Eastern European accent. I don't know.、Uh, th- that was very Twin Peaks, wasn't it? This one.、Mm. I mean,、uh, let me let me instead of telling what it was about, read the passage again. In this forest of curtains, forest of curtains. Come on, that's Twin、mm, Peaks. Right. Ayuan's mind was filled with many events of the past. He felt it bizarre that although many of these things had hadn't happened, nonetheless, in his memory, they had become his own experiences. For example. It was the bride who had had an accident in the artificial lake, but now this had become an event from his past. His palm was still scarred from being scratched by a shark at the bottom of the lake. When he thought of this, he licked his palm. So it was、uh, this story about a person who suddenly starts looking for a swamp. Is what I can say, and it was it was very interesting because for me, it's it. Started like an adventure story,、uh, like an, a, a very weird adventure story. So this guy is looking is looking for、uh, the swamp, and I don't know why is he looking for it, but it intrigued me. So on his quest to find the snow,、uh, the the swamp, I'm with him. So the story goes, and I'm like, go, 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 find the swamp, find the swamp, and then and then these piglets show up, and <laughs> then and they seem to be the helper from the classic adventure story. Like the white rabbit from the Matrix, and、yeah. it seems that they will lead our protagonist to his aim, the swamp.、Uh, so then I'm like, yeah, follow the piglets, follow the piglets. They will lead you to the swamp. But the story goes on, and at a certain point, I start asking myself, wait a minute, what if the piglets are not a real connection to something important, but just a distraction? So what if? But this is this is uh, uh, this is not what the story is about. I'm I'm blabbering about my interpretation、uh, already. So, but but anyway. So, what if we what we think is important, important, fun, and sweet, like the piglet star in our lives, is just a distraction from the important stuff we should be doing with our lives, which would be looking for the swamp. So maybe books are a distraction. Maybe this podcast is a distraction as well. But after that, it doesn't. Uh, it, it started to seem to me that maybe the swamp is also a fake game. You know, I I, I think I've always been I've, I've always had interest in broken narratives. You mentioned that, and、uh, even when I was 
little I remember, I kept imagining how the, how the hero just dies in the middle of the film and then the film ends. I kept imagining this when I was watching action movies. Interesting. And that, of course, is the most simple way. One, you can think that I was very little back then. Uh, a very simple way to play with the narrative expectations. And Sanskrit is doing it in a whole different level. Um, and it's not postmodern, like you said, at all. Mm. Meaning she's not doing it to make fun of meaning. Right. On the contrary, she's searching for the real meaning beneath the narrative. And I, and I think this is, this is very beautiful. And mm. uh, I don't know. Uh, this guy is looking for the swamp and we don't know why. And we don't know why we look for things in life in general. And he, at some point realizes that the swamp can be anywhere and he looks in, in in different absurd places like in a person's cart at some point he looks for the swamp and at some point he finds it but it causes trouble to him so he he's he finally finds what he's searching for but it turns out to be trouble and uh, and there's not really a clear narrative aim here there's uh, so i guess that's my take on the whole story and that that's why th this is my favorite of the four uh, stories that we're uh, we are going to discuss it's, right um, uh, th th there were a lot of images and i remember that i remember ha harmony corinne once said do you know this film director harmony Corrine? yeah i've she... seen two of his films i've seen uh gummel and spring breakers probably the right, two well, most famous ones i think well, uh, he was when he was talking about Gummo, he was saying that when he was watching uh, films as a young man, he never actually remembered the story, the narrative. He just kept remember remembering images, different images uh, that struck him that yeah. struck him when he was watching the movie. So he decided that he wants to make a movie full of just striking images and mm. not a clear narrative. And I think that's what Sansu is kind of did in this story and many of our other stories as well what do you think yeah um i think about well just talking directly about films like i know yeah. this getting way away from like um any kind of abstract ideas i think th there's this really kind of um it's like cliche to bring it up but there's this guy to film making called save the cat i think this is the one that has this idea called the promise of the premise which right. is the idea right. that every film is premised on something and that's kind of why people go to see the film so like, and it's very easy to think of what every film's promise of a premise is like um, Die Hard, it's Bruce Willis climbing through the vents. That's the, that's the bit that is the film. Everything else kind of exists to support that. Right. Uh, or James Bond, it's, well, I suppose James Bond has lots of things you kind of sign up for, like, but I suppose it's the action scenes. Um, it's a cool guy doing cool stuff. Um, and like Gummo is a film where the whole thing is like the premise. It's like a vibe. Um, and I could see what you mean, where like the swamp for me, that this was like a pleasurable story to read. I mean, I think the our, our, out of our four choices, I actually picked, I picked the first one because it's the book's title. Two, three, and four, I picked them because they were pleasurable for me to read. A lot okay. of the other stories in the book, I didn't necessarily have fun reading them, um, even if I did get something out of them. But yeah, the right. swamp is a really good example where like, yeah, even if I... I kind of disagree. I think it does have a bit of a progression to it. But yeah, the whole thing has like this vibe and um, a little bit like a little bit like a film that's all based on like its atmosphere and its style. Like it's style like it's really it's a really stylish story. Um yeah, so that's the answer to your question. I, I see what you mean, but I see it more in um like mm -hmm. a film like Gummo than than uh 
the swamp because I did get a little bit of a feeling of some kind of uh, story in the swamp that I didn't get in Story of the Slums, ironically. So my interpretation of the story was a little bit, a little bit similar, a little bit different. Um, like I did get the feeling that the character was looking for some meaning in his life and was being kind of, kind of finding fulfillment, kind of feeling vexed. The thing about the pigs, um, I didn't really have an interpretation for that. Um, I do want to ask at some point about like why there's so many cute animals in these stories, um, in these horrible, horrible scenes and situations. Um, like in Story of the Slums, there's these little creatures that are described as like little guys or little critters. Um, right. There's a scene in Story of the Slums where the main character is flying around on the back of a flying squirrel. And it's like, right. did Sancho know how cute this was? <laughs> or is this just in my head and then we have in this story we've got little piglets and then <laughs> um i think old cicada and crow mountain not so much but like in a lot, a lot of her stuff like and maybe it's just the translation like the translator's choice to use the word critters like i know in her short story vertical motion there's these weird beak-like animals that are tunneling through the earth and the english translation i read in an excerpt called them critters which is like a very folksy, cute um, American sort of word. And I, I've not read the Chinese original, so I don't know if they're trying to reflect a Chinese word or if they've made a weird choice, like a bad choice. I don't know. But cute. Uh, and I, yeah. But I noticed like, I just, my main thought about the piglet says, oh, these are very cute. It's surreal. Um, it's a clue. We're supposed to read this as the hero. Like it's like you said, like a hero's journey. The hero is, on the right path because he's seeing these things that tell him he's on the right path um which you can like i know some people um think about this in their real life there's a podcast i listen to called weird studies where they indulge these kind of paranormal ideas and yeah, they, yeah 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 i love it so much um and they're feeling about synchronicities like meaningful coincidences it's a term coined by jung if you start hitting if you start if you look out for synchronicities you'll see them and if they start happening in clusters, something's happening. Either you're on the right path, whatever the right path is, or you're heading towards trouble. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what I thought was up with the piglets, because there's other signs, like whenever the narrator see, hears the sound of bubbles, he's approaching the swamp. If he meets someone in his daily life who doesn't seem to be normal, um, it's a hint that they've been to the swamp. So I kind of read that as like this, the universe or something or the swamp giving the author signs that he's on a he's on a sort of a mystical path or some he's he's on the right path to find this like hidden reality that's that's what i got from the piglets and that's 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 not even my reading of the story that's just using the piglets <laughs> to, as a jump off point well uh, to, to me the, the piglets were, were really this uh point in uh, life experience when when something seems right really and something seems to fit into the into your understanding like you're looking to, uh, for something and you have this aim in your head and you have this image in your head and you tend to interpret stuff your way because you're set on a journey and things most of the time in sensuous stories and in life are not and in Twin Peaks <laughs> Uh, are not necessarily what they seem to you. Uh, so, so these pillars, they're really cute and we tend to be drawn to cuteness. And maybe that's a problematic uh, inclination that we have in us. 
maybe we shouldn't look at cuteness, but we should consider what things are really are as far as we can, because, you know, we're very restricted in our thinking and our um, uh, reception to reality. So that's what I think about the piglets. Uh, so so these, th- that's actually the example I wanted to, to give when I was talking about Sanchez stories stripping me of uh, beliefs or inclinations or bias. Uh, like it, it reminds me how how hard is it is to interpret something because I mean objectively outside of, of who you are outside of uh, what you strive in life mm-hmm. and then there come the, these piglets and maybe they have nothing to do really with you they're just these random creatures that show up but because you're you and you tend to think that the universe surrounds you and uh, resolves around you uh, you tend to think that the piglets have anything, uh, have something to do with you, but maybe they don't. They don't, and I think that in the stories they just don't. They're just these random creatures. You've reminded me of uh, so I've recent, not not like yesterday, but fairly recently, I was going on to YouTube to listen to the Slavoj Zizek um, do some talks. <laughs> I haven't listened to him in a while. Uh, well, an example of something insane that keeps you sane is uh, I, I once a year I need to listen to something Slavoj Zizek has said. Um, and I noticed, I think I'd seen him before, quoted as saying before something like, nature is stupid. And I was like, okay, he's just being edgy. What the hell does that mean? But um, he was talking about how, why, no, he, he, whenever he referenced an animal, he would call it stupid. <laughs> he's like oh i heard about like what on a, what's your ideal life and he describes a bear that hibernates but he says you know there is this stupid bear i i kind of got it i was like oh i see what he means he means that we shouldn't look for anything particularly great in nature because it's random and, and stupid and what you were saying about not projecting your ideas of cuteness which have just come from like your stupid monkey brain onto right. these baby animals um i'm sure it's my dad or people on my dad's side of the family whenever they see baby lambs because um we do this well we haven't i've i've missed out on it for years and we didn't do it this year because of lockdown but we're a very um bourgeois british family we go to, we go on a holiday to the lake district every spring as a family so i'm not from the slums uh <laughs> and there's always lambs there because it's spring and it's the countryside well materially and, you're not but uh <laughs> mentally you are yeah i'm in discord and zoom so i'm very much in the slums <laughs> sorry about interrupting, interrupting yeah it's okay um yeah so there's always lambs there it's a rural area um with lots of sheep and my dad or someone will always say something like how do they grow up to be such stupid ugly animals it's like <laughs> after at a certain age i was like wait they're already stupid in fact they're even more stupid than sheep and i, I think yeah when i was a teenager my, my dad was renting a he was living in the countryside renting a house and he met a farmer and the farmer said something like you never see an adult sheep are fully grown sheep because we kill them off um, before they can develop. So you never see a smart sheep either because you, we kill them before their brains develop. So yeah, there's like your um, stupid surface level reading of the intelligence of sheep where the lambs by looking nicer, by virtue of looking nicer than the sheep must be more switched on in their brain. And then the reality, which is based on like human meat consumption, where there are no smart sheep because we've shaped the world in that way. That's a nice analogy. I liked it. Mm. I remember this. I was watching a uh, making of uh, this movie Fitzcarraldo by uh, Werner Herzog. And uh, they filmed it mostly in this uh, wild forest or something or island or something like that. And he was saying that uh, 
you know, we, we tend to romanticize nature and we tend to think it's beautiful and wonderful, but it's actually really nasty and dangerous and horrible and scary. And uh, there are the insects that can bite you and you can die uh, from, from their poison. So, yeah. Mm. This would where, be where I would um, do my Werner Herzog impression, but um, I don't want to scare off any potential German uh, <laughs> Patreon supporters. But yeah, like I'm sure, I'm sure there's a no. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Nature do it. is evil. There you go. <laughs> it is horrible. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, good job, good job. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. The swamp. So the thing I was ah yeah no before I go on to the next point, what you were saying about Twin yeah. Peaks and yeah. time, because the thing that really jumped out to me in the story is time. Mm. So we have here um, the, the recurring poem. In, um, in Twin Peaks. Through the darkness of future's past, the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds. Fire, walk with me. And the thing about future past and wanting to see, that resonates for the story for me because to, in my mind, this guy trying to go to the swamp, he's one, trying to go to this sort of weird other space where he can be liberated. So like... um. When I was living in Shanghai, I used to try and get on rooftops. Not because I, well, the view is nice, but it's like this weird other space. And I actually have a story about a rooftop I should tell you because it's very Sanchoe-ish. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell that later. Um, okay. But yeah, the other thing I felt like this guy was trying to see was the past. I got, because the story, the characters always say this city, there used to be a swamp. They built the city on top of it. There's hints right. that the swamp is in a hotel and there's talk that something awful happened in the former basement in the early, I think this, it, there's some date you're given and it's obviously a Maoist, like early 60s, I think. Or late like 60s. 63 or something, yeah. what was it? Yeah. So a happy time here in the UK, not such a happy time in, um, in China. Um, and you're kind of given, the implication seems to be lots of people were killed and buried in this, what is now this fancy hotel. We learned that there's this old woman that the narrator meets and he meets her later again in her younger form, it seems. And that younger form has a memory of being stuck under this pond, which seems to also mm. be the swamp. So he's meeting these different people from these different... It's like almost, it's almost like time travel or some sort of time warping going on. A, a thing me and my girlfriend talked about recently is wondering when you're walking on any piece of land, wondering who stepped here before, what happened here before? Um, so it might depend where you are. Like if you're in if you're in this part of Scotland, it's always been fairly populated. So stuff some stuff will have likely happened here. We're on a we're actually on a pilgrims road where um because we're near St Andrews, it's famous for its university now. It used to be famous for its uh, uh, monastery. I forget what exactly some an abbey, I think. So lots of people would make pilgrimages. So there's actually a bridge we cross just if we're getting milk and bread from the local shop. And that's the old Pilgrim's Road. It's interesting to stop and wonder in like gener across the generations what's happened here. And it's even more mad when you think that applies to most of the world. Even if people didn't walk on the spot you walked on, a bug bugs will have, animals will have. So yeah, I kind of thought of it as a journey through time. And by by like some extension, there's I felt like there was a little bit of an so a national allegory, because we mentioned the people, the dead people, but also economic development. He goes into one of the less built up or a new area of the city to find the swamp and he goes into these like dilapidated corners 
And I remember when I lived in small town China, the spot I was living in it had previously been the edge of town just like 10, 15 years ago. But not very long ago, for most of the town's history, it was fields. And at what was then, I lived, so I lived like a few hundred meters from what was then the edge of the town. But beyond that edge, there was a construction site and the town was going to expand again. So um, most of these stories, I didn't feel it was trying to say anything about China, more just about humanity. But in the kind of like idea of a place that was once an environment now being some sort of a built up area and wanting to get back, wanting to like see into the past and see a glimpse of the swamp. Yeah, I could, uh, that's something I was getting. Um, there's other stuff, but I'm running out of breath. <laughs> I, I remembered about this uh, film I watched um, last year, I think. It was called Synchronic of all titles. Uh, it's by these kind of indie horror film filmmakers, uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. And it's about, uh, there, there was this drug that people take. And when they take it, they go back in time. And they go mm. back to the same exact place where they are. So Ooh. they see what's what's what has been there uh, years back in time. And because they make, they usually make horror movies. So usually they will encounter something that will kill them or murder them. Yeah, so the, that, that was basically the, the premise. Uh, the, but what were you were saying uh, reminded me of that movie. Yeah, it would be interesting to see a non-horror version where they just find something very mundane or slightly bizarre. Well, I guess Back to the Future then. You know? mm. <laughs> there, have you yeah. heard of a film or seen a film called A Ghost Story? Yes, I have. Yeah, that plays with that a little bit, but it's um, it's forward Does in it? time. Yeah, because the character, maybe... It's, it's Casey Affleck is this guy who dies. Right, right. And then right. he inhabits a house. And he, yeah. so he's living in the house him and his girlfriend or, or wife, I forget, had lived in. But she moves away and other families move in. And he's a ghost. So he never ages. And he never needs to move now, house. Yeah. In fact, he probably can't move house. But he stays in this place well into, well, I, I don't want to spoil it. But he's on it as a ghost, as a character who doesn't age and doesn't die. He's on a journey through time and he's attached to one spot. Right. And the people who arrive in that new spot don't know what happened before, or they might know the previous occupants, but they don't know the full sort of ghost story of the place, so to speak. Mm. Well, yeah, time is something that these avant all of the avant-garde writers seem to play around with a lot. Um, Yuhua has an es essay where he talks about the mental time as opposed to actual time and reality and Sanshua also has an essay where she says that what she writes about this the, the this spiritual time or the time of the soul not of the actual time mm. and what she makes as I already said that but uh, uh, her short stories actually constitute uh, mm, a diary, diary entries about her soul condition so yeah, not, nothing is really real in uh, in them. But uh, and, and uh, time in in our minds is really something different. Like everyone knows that, you know, because at at, at the one moment I could be there talking to you, and then you start saying something really boring, and then I drift off and uh, start remembering something that happened to me two years ago or I start thinking about something that I will do five years from now 
and it's it's this incessant line of events that are not really chronological in my mind. So that's what these avant-garde writers are trying to to play around with. Yuhua, uh, including and uh, Tanshue as well, although they do it very differently. Mm. Yeah, that came up in the other like avant-garde story that I've done on the podcast. Gofei's uh, mm. flock of brown birds. One of one of the stories whose Chinese name I can rattle off. Uh, remember but yeah there's um there's a line in that where the character literally says either there is a blockage in my memory or something has gone wrong with time and my guest uh eric abramson favored or he read it as um yeah the guy has has got mental problems and is he's just not he can't remember he can't process time because he's um he's repressing his past and i was like yeah yeah, that's a valid reading, but I really want time to be broken. That's much more fun. And if you're reading Tantra, I get, I don't know. I, mean, it's, I feel like you could you could end up with the same two interpretations. And you're, I don't know, in, in, in the Gaffey one, it's like, here's one reading, here's the other. You probably, you can't really have both, but they're both in the story. Whereas the Tantra one, it's like, yeah, here's both readings. And they're fragmented and you'll never uh, separate them. Yeah, I like that. I like mm. that. Yeah, and that won't work in the podcast because I was making little shapes with my hands. But <laughs> I, I can describe it. <laughs> um, the Gofei one, I had, I had two hands with my fingers together, showing the palms. And the Tantra one, I'd spread all my fingers out and started waving my hands around like a cloud of dust. Right. It seems to me that she is trying to reach to this, how do you pronounce this word in English? Primordial state yep, of things? Yeah. Yeah, um, like where everything was not set yet and uh, it, it was very ambiguous and people and things still didn't have any identities. And uh, in some of her essays, she stresses that this is a very important thing uh, about understanding the human condition and the human nature, like getting to this primordial state of things like not returning to it, definitely not returning to it, but keeping the connection with it, like not losing the, the, the connection to what was, what had once been. Yeah, I know exactly, well, I think I know exactly what you mean, but yeah, this is something <laughs> that fascinates me, the idea of what reality is like outside your head and how through things like literature or philosophy or just trying to think abstractly, you might be able to get your head around the idea, but you know, in, unless you, you're the way you take in the world through your senses, and this this came up in Moyan's uh, radish short story. So a guy who I wouldn't have thought of as being who you, who you wouldn't who you'd think of as being a bit more realist, but in radish, one of his early stories, he was in the, the character Hei Hai. Um, he's a kid, and he can sense things other people can't, and that was the thing I really hooked onto, like. You might just be like, oh, he's a precocious kid. He pays attention to nature. Or you might be like, this kid perceives more of reality. And it's maybe just because he's a kid. Um, so yeah, like ways that you could, ways that you, if your senses could just be realigned, you might get snatches of this distorted world. Um, I guess people have tried to do that, you know, with substances, with drugs. Um, but if your right. brain, who knows, like if you suffered brain damage, uh, if your brain realigned, I'm not saying that those are good things, but you might, your distorted reality might, even if it doesn't show you more of what's actually out there, it's, it spells out the fact that the way we see the world is just constructed in our brains. Um, 
Yeah, now it's my turn to say that. I know exactly mm. what you mean. And I think the comparison with Radish is pretty cool because uh, it, it's exactly what I was thinking when I was reading it because this child, this characters, he, this character, he's a child, but he's also mute. So mm. he doesn't communicate with other people. So he isn't so much cultured as them. He hasn't right. uh, gotten the... Uh, cultural knowledge that everyone around him has so he still inhabits this uh, more ambiguous and uh, primal territory uh, right in of his mind mm-hmm. of the mind yeah it's uh, less mediated a yeah. last thing i wanted to mention um because i think it's interesting there's there aren't always interesting human characters in, in these stories that i've read Uh, like secondary to the narrator, but there's an interesting one in this story. So I mentioned an, an old woman and then she reappears as a younger woman. So when our uh, protagonist, is he called Ayuan or is that someone else? I, uh, yeah, yeah. He yeah, is. which is interesting because the name Ayuan pops up in Story of the Slums, referring to a boy. Ah, I noticed. Okay. I mean, I'm assuming it's the same Chinese characters, but certainly on the page, there's an Ayuan in Story of the Slums. And then a little bit later in the book, in Swamp, we meet where stories being told by an, or is, no, it's third person, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah the, swamp, the, the, the Swamp is uh, third person. Yeah. Third person. So yeah, Ayuan is starting to get somewhere on his mission. He ends up in this building. He finds what seems to be like a, a very slapdash photography studio um, where there's this kind of, I don't know, is he, sle- I don't know if he's sleazy, but this kind of, not entirely pleasant photographer and there's this bored young woman who's wearing it's described as a was it a long red silk gown so we're, you might assume it's a chinese wedding dress and she kind of becomes ayuan's pal there's like some yeah. it's never goes anywhere it's never stated outright there might be some sexual tension there she might know the way to the swamp but she doesn't really help him out in taking him there and then a little bit later you kind of realize that, well, you realize that she's been to the swamp and may have possibly drowned there. And if you're putting two and two together, you'll realize she's the old woman he met earlier. And right. the last time he sees her, I think, she's standing under a lamppost and he's he gets spooked like he's seen a ghost. But the interesting thing is the thing that's being described as pale and creepy isn't her face. It's her it's her dress. It's her clothes. But I, I remember another one uh, that I that I have here in front of me there was this dialogue that I really enjoyed reading because it was again funny and spooky to me and I think it's a classic Kafka dialogue at some point Ayuan wants to get to this building and he goes there but the building doesn't have any doors oh yeah and I'm gonna read the passage great a girl 11 or 12 years old walked up hi there what are you doing she asked do you know how can how I can get in Ayuan asked in embarrassment go in You can't. This building has no door. Is anyone inside? Of course. What I mean is, don't the people inside ever come out? How can they never come out? Why not? I've, I've never seen them come out. Not even once. You're a fool if you go on waiting. The girl glanced contemptuously at Ayuan and looked at him doubtfully for quite a while before leaving. So this is, yeah, something like that. Uh, these kind of dialogues uh, I really like because, uh, again, uh, the two people apparently inhabit two completely different realities and you you kind of want to make sense of the reality that you have gotten yourself into 
and you ask around, of course, like every one of us, we try to make sense of our reality. But what you get is just absurd answers, but set in a very definitive way. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course, the, the situation is absurd. And I remember what I remember most about Sanxue. I read one of her stories, and I don't even remember which one was it, from a short story collection. And there was this uh, character in a forest, and he or she, I don't know, was walking in the forest, and it was night. It was really spooky and scary. And then suddenly he sees a cottage of some kind, mm. and he goes in, and there is this old man in this cottage and it's completely dark, but he sees the old man and the old man looks up and he says, would you wash my feet? And the character goes on and wash, washes this old person's feet. And I think that is what most of us actually do. And that is how most of us act in reality, or at least me, like we are trying to find our way and we see things that don't make sense. And our environment says something to us and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't fit, but we still go along with it because we feel that reality is somehow stronger than us and uh, it has to make sense somehow. So we go along with it. Okay. And I think that's th this, uh, this um, inertia, is that what you call it in, in English, uh, is, uh, is something that Sans Hue is often commenting with her stories that, that she kind of, wants to oppose this mm. but she often writes about it like how we how we tend to just play along with the absurdity of life yeah i, know. I know what you mean so you're saying it's quite kafka-esque i think the only yeah the only kafka story i've read is uh, the metamorphosis which maybe isn't like his most like if you're looking for a story of his that has like these ridiculous question and answer scenes that's maybe not the best one uh, but i did listen to well this is a very kafka tantra-esque thing i did I put the audiobook for the castle onto, mm. I think it was an iPod I had at the time. Uh, and I didn't like using iTunes to re reorganize stuff. It wasn't a very happy situation. I had downloaded it illegally as well. So the version I got, the files were all, the tracks were in the wrong order. So I remember walking my dog listening <laughs> to the castle, but with the chapters in a random order. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, this is, I'm probably about as depressed as the main character here. This sucks. Um, but yeah, like the Kafka-esque thing of someone asking a question and the response being like, why did you ask? You fool, you idiot, you cretin. What a stupid question. Yes. Yeah, yes. I've had that in my real life. You see that on the internet all the time. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so it reads as crazy in a story, but it's quite true to life. But what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to figure out is how, uh, how does reading about the situation actually, what, what does it do to us? I mean, I enjoy it a lot. I think it's funny and it's uh, horrifying as well. And I, I enjoy that. But th does, it, does it have any meaning for us to, to, to read about these kind of situations, these kind of absurdities? What do you think? Well, if you think about how often the word Kafkaesque gets thrown around, and it's usually <laughs> thrown around to describe stupid bureaucracy, or if you're using it correctly, it's to describe stupid bureaucracy. So, yeah, I think, I think I, I've thought about this myself. I did a literature degree and I've often wondered, like, mm, maybe I should have learned skills instead. Um, what the hell is, is literature? Like if you were looking at it from a robot's perspective and you didn't need it for fun, what function What function beyond like brainwashing the masses or something could it serve? Um, and I think it gives you useful reference points. If something crazy happens, you could say, oh, this is just like that thing that happened last week. That's not very useful. 
if you say this is like so-and-so situation from a novel or movie, if enough people have read that thing, it's useful. Um, it's actually, it has utility. Or if you're saying someone is a bit like, if you could say like, oh, so-and-so is like our old geography teacher. Do you remember him? Okay, you've compared him to another person. You haven't compared him to an idea. If you say so-and-so is like Snape from Harry Potter, you it works really well. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe Sancho doing that works as nicely as a reference to Kafka or for an interesting scene. But if her writing's useful for stuff, it might be the things that are unique to her writing that we could use as a reference. I guess it kind of helps you distance yourself from the real absurdities and kind of look at them more, I don't know, coldly or mm. like more more withdrawn from them uh, and not let them not let them get you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like acknowledging the absurdity of life is if yeah. you're going to do it, it should be as a comfort or as a right. as a way to put yourself in a better place rather than being like everything is meaningless my life that yeah you could do that it might feel good the same way that an alcoholic feels good getting drunk but tantra right. wouldn't want you to do that i don't want no. you to do that um no. as tempting as it may be yeah uh, let's go on to the third story shall we are we are we done with yeah. this one okay I um so. yeah so this one is called the old cicada this is pretty different from the last two but not totally different either um i think it's my turn to describe what i was yeah, getting go. from it okay right i'm just going to go through my keywords here so the first one is non-human slash animal perspectives um there's a lot of those in the book um like right after you finish story of the slums <laughs> the first sentence of the next story is something like i am an old i am a middle-aged magpie um <laughs> so there's loads of animals telling these stories or most of the stories are about animals. This one's like about like a whole cast of animals who live in a sort of like a garden area outside a residential building. So it's a weird thing because on one hand, like when I was visualizing the garden, I was actually thinking of a back garden of a house my dad used to live in that um, I would go to uh, after my parents divorced. I'd be there every second weekend and every Wednesday, holidays, half of holidays and every Wednesday afternoon through to Thursday morning. So this garden, I kind of half knew, half didn't. And I was thinking about it because there was a corner that had really big spiders behind the shed. And this story has a, has a big spider who um, is obviously significant as some kind of stand-in for something. Um, but the story is about a cicada. So that's an animal I never met until I went to China. It's a very, it, they're known for being loud. You could even say annoying. They, they're, I don't, Something like they spend huge amounts of time living under the ground, I think. And then they come out, they go up the tree and they like sing. Well, in this story, they sing their hearts out. So we, we have this old cicada who lives at the, well, he hangs out at the very top of this tree and he's some kind of like a figurehead for the rest of the cicadas. He, they look up to him as a leader, but he doesn't talk to them at all. He just, well, he doesn't communicate directly with anyone. He just sings his little cicada song. And uh, there are other cicadas. There's a spider nearby who cicadas sometimes fall into his web, but we get a hint that they might actually want to, which is a bit creepy. And the cicada ends up becoming a bit obsessed with the spider and wonders if it's like a nemesis or a mirror cell. And um, eventually he seems to fall into the spider's web. It happens off screen. 
But then the end of the story, the spider is gone and the cicada seems to have been reborn and he's back in his old spot. Um, that was really creepy, yeah. And in the background, we have there's a boy who comes out of the housing complex and he has a slingshot and he picks off the animals. Mm. Um, he always shoots at the cicada and he always misses. But once or twice, the cicada thinks, did I want him to get me? Did I want that little rock to kill me? Uh, the boy kills off a toad who lives under a rock who also sings his heart out. Like, I guess, after the toad has been killed, the old cicada can still hear him. And at the end of the story, everyone seems to be in a sort of a daze. They're very confused about what it all means. And it's interesting because about halfway through the story, the cicada had ended up in a daze himself, wondering what is life, blah, 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 blah. And by the end, the boy with the slingshot is walking around, like also not sure what he was even doing in the first place. So that's the, that's like what happens, but what does it mean under the surface? Um, well, it's an animal world. We're seeing everything from the animal's point of view, but maybe because animals don't have many rational faculties, everything is very mysterious. Um, the cicada only has like vague notions of things. Uh, death and rebirth. I don't really know what to make of him coming back to life. Death seems to be really significant. Uh, a few of the podcasts and things I've been I think mostly in podcasts I've been listening to, they seem to be mentioning um, Freud's idea of the death drive a lot in his essay mm-hmm. Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Actually, no, this was coming up in Mark. Reading some, I read two Mark Fisher books, and the idea that um, I think Mark Fisher and his uh, well other similar people latched onto is the death drive and the interpretation of it that ma- all matter, oh, sorry, all matter is naturally uh, inert and living creatures made of living matter at the atomic level want or are destined or their purpose or something is to return to being inert so i wonder if something Mm. like that's going on where the cicada and his other buddies want at some deep level to return to being inert matter but they don't know why because you you, i don't know i'm a human and i don't know why i i can't figure that one out um so and the spider seems to be a stand-in for that then, but then you have the boy as well. So what's the difference between the boy and the spider? The spider seems to be the deeper symbol because the cicada is wondering if he is also the spider. I just I couldn't work out what it, it, it affected me. It seemed really resonant, but I don't know why. Again, we talked about the mirror before, how you know yourself through the mirror. Obviously, there's something going on there. Um, the body and bliss. This one made more sense. Um, and I think it was in that talk or an interview with Tanshira said how she wanted readers to get joy from their bodies she seems to feel really strongly about this that i mean it seems like a contradiction because when you're reading you're forgetting about your body but it seems like she wants you to whether in your daily life or when you're reading to remember your physical thing and not to feel dragged down by your body but to love it or something um get sounds dirty if i say it like this but get pleasure from it but if you think of what the cicada's doing, he loves having a body because it lets him sing. It gives him some like transcendent sort of bliss. So I guess that that has to be tied into death because you, only, you can only die if you're a body, I think. And I put dark desires. I guess like, I don't know, in Story of the Slums, the main character doesn't seem to like want to inflict pain on himself. It just sort of happens. But in the swamp, I kind of got the feeling that the main character is chasing after something he knows might be very dangerous. Um mm. so I don't know. Maybe maybe there's like it's there's some sort of idea of like self-destructive tendencies. 
and we we go towards them, although we don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all I got. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I got so so much. I I seem to have forgotten most of it, and the the other three I remember, but this one, uh, you you reminded me almost everything about it. I, I had uh, blanked it out. It's very but short. What you say about death, I think, is a very yeah yeah. Uh, and Sansphere herself talks about death like with capital D, like the god of death, um, in some of her essays and. She says that all of her stories actually have death with a capital D in them. Uh, and there are also characters or creatures who are w- weird and they do not give in to death. And in themselves, they carry something that, that does not die and mm. has, never, has never died. Uh, that, that's that's a quote from one of her essays. So what I was uh, feeling mostly, not thinking, uh, when I was reading this story, uh, the scene where the old cicada is watching how the spider has eaten the smaller cicadas somehow has stuck into my mind. And it felt to me that this is... So, like, it wasn't said explicitly, but the old cicada was disturbed by the scene of uh, uh, the spider having eaten his own, his own kin. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, not, he's not pleased about it at least at first. Right. Disturbed and is the right word. Yeah. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know how to stop this. Mm. And at the beginning of the, of the short story, there was this sentence that I really liked. It was when the boy was trying to hit him with the slingshot. It said that the old cicada didn't know how to avoid humans' hostility, for he had never avoided anything. Right. And this seems to illustrate the helplessness of, you know, existing at some at some level. Mm. Uh, we humans are helpless towards things as well. Although in the situation of the cicada, we we can deal with the situation of the cicada. I mean, you know, we cannot be eaten by a spider or something like that. We can crush the spider because we're humans. But this is, uh, I, th- I think, a very important moment of the development of the human mind and body as well. So I was imagining how many, 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 many years ago, humans were as helpless and disturbed by these natural tragedies. And they like the cicada couldn't do anything about it and very slowly and very uh, yeah very slowly during a long period of time somehow this kept disturbing him disturbing them and this disturbance resulted in humans evolving into a stronger animal the, the, this is what i got from this scene mostly and from this whole story it's it's not it's not everything in the story i i'm sure but this is mostly what I can say about it. That rings very true to me, especially the thing about the very basic idea of the cicada witnesses or maybe even learns about death being in the world and then decides to do something about it. Um, I'm trying to think if, um, I guess a lot of religions or, or uh, like mm. myths of the origin of humankind have some kind of moment where evil enters if it's, even if it's not death, the kind of inconvenience of being alive enters the world. So like... Right. Um, when Adam and Eve get chucked out of Eden, it's not just that they have to fend for themselves, 
but they're going to have to deal with bad people like Cain and, I guess Cain and Abel that's a moment where evil enters the world but Eve right. has to deal with childbirth being awful so and then I guess human civilization follows and it's a big mess from there um, but people always try to do something about it um, or the other one I can think of is like uh, Pandora's box so I guess it's it's different from uh, this old Takeda story but again there's a moment where everything bad in the human world comes into existence and then again that determines everything that follows you have to then deal with it I, I guess we, we are still kind of terrified from that mm. we seemed to have forgotten a large part of this horror because I mean we seem a lot more was the opposite of vulnerable right now impervious uh, okay I, I don't know what, I don't know what that word but okay we seem a lot more impervious than we have been like a thousand or ten thousand years ago but the the horror is still there the the dead from dying and also the thing that you said the dead drive because death is scary but uh so is life i think sansia mentions in one of her essays again that her stories are uh, a, a dance uh on the knife of death or something like that it was i'm not quoting exactly but yeah yeah it was something like that so so yeah death is always there and it uh, terrifies us and it also draws us mm. Yeah, uh, this so the place I'm staying right now, it's a sort of a, like a cabin almost um, on the road to St. Andrews from Dundee. It's quite a busy road. We're separated from the road by a wooden fence and a bush and a little bit of distance. But there's a lot of lorries go up this road. And occasionally I'm, I have this thought, like, what if a lorry just swerved and then yeah. hit the wrong part of the house? Game over. Or like when I'm walking alongside the road, especially, but there's no, there's no bush and there's no fence and there's no walls. There's just this little sack of meat, which could not win in a fight with a lorry. So yeah, um, I, yeah, uh, I guess it reminds you you're an animal, just like you're never that far away from being extinguished. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Should we go on to the next one? Yeah. Okay. So this one, I think this is a decent one to end on because it has, it reminds me most, well, it reminds me a lot of the first two we did. Um, so this is Crow Mountain. Uh-huh. And yeah, I think it's, it's your turn. Well, it's again uh, bits and pieces. I don't claim to have remembered all of it, uh, but I enjoyed this one a lot. It was uh, it was very again scary and funny and mm. um, yeah. Mm, so it's about this these two girls and there's this building called Crow Mountain and one of the girls has uh, passed by it when she was little and she has always wanted to go there since. And finally, her friend takes us, take her, takes her there, uh, because her uncle works or lives in the in the building. Mm. So they go in, and somehow suddenly they get separated, and they still can hear each other's voices, but they are in different spaces. And the friend seems to be somewhere where there are cherries, and somewhere where there's light. And our main characters is in a completely dark place. And she seems to be somewhere at the bottom of the house while her friends while her friend seems to have climbed up a few uh, stories. And 
our main character is really scared and she wants to get to the top floor where her friend is and her friend keeps saying yeah just uh, make a few steps and you'll be right here but the story goes on and she keeps just although she although she walks she keeps staying in the darkness and she meets the friend's uncle who turns out to be a giant a very interesting figure and i don't i don't this part is kind of lost on me and i remember suddenly they come out and they're together outside and they are heading home and the friend says that she's uh, uh, says to our main character that she's always welcome to go back there with her anytime she likes and our main character is really glad to hear that uh, she says I cheered up as soon as she said that I had a secret this was our secret Lian's and mine and I think that's how the story ends. So I, I, I tried. I, I tried to. Yeah. I tried to stick to facts just now, uh, and not stick in my interpretation. What meaning did you see? I don't know. I like this one about. I, I really like how it ended because the girl had a terrible experience in the house. Like she, she really wanted to go there, and she had a really terrible experience and really scary. Uh, she was scared all the time. And when she went out, she was really happy that she went there. And that was her secret. And yeah, I think that's, again, somehow what life or certain aspects or certain moments of life are to us. We're enthusiastic about them. And then we go there. For example, I like to go hiking and I do... Sometimes I I go with friends and we spend several days in the mountain. And we every day we hike and we spend at a different place the night. And it's usually a terrible experience. It's very miserable. Uh, but we end up uh, remembering it really, really beautiful. And uh, we keep doing it every year. Mm. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's a kind of superficial example and a kind of shallow analogy. But uh, it seems to kind of, it seems the same as the, as the story. The other yeah. thing is the, the secret. And I remember another story. And I, again, I don't remember the name. By sounds you uh, where the character was burying something under a tree. And he was saying that it's not that he wants to, to, to keep the thing or to hide it. He just wants to, to, to have buried something that he only knows where it is, like to have his own secret. So it's not an important thing. It doesn't matter if anyone finds it and it's, uh, whatever but he has this in his mind and no one else knows about it so yeah. it's important that, that he has a secret and i don't know i haven't analyzed that since i read it i read it a long time ago but i really mm. love it I, I think it's beautiful i i think i i know exactly that feeling and i think the reason it appeals to me is because you haven't just got a secret in your head you've claimed a little secret space somewhere mm. in, on planet earth that's yours and if it's well hidden enough your thing's going to stay there forever so I wonder if space, I think definitely in this story, physical space seemed to be uh, a key. I, I mentioned verticality before. And a thing that I kind of got in the first reading, but got even more out of the second reading is the uh, with our, our narrator, she's called Chuhua. Chuhua walks in and she's expecting a building with stories as any sensible person would. But the building she walks into is like a black space with mm-hmm. no steps nothing it's just space although she finds like a pillar of light she finds walls they're outside walls but she's got no nothing that would help her get up but she just 
takes steps through the air and is able to go up the way. She goes, I mean, again, she moves a little bit on the horizontal plane, I think to find walls just for security, maybe, maybe if I'm remembering right. But the point is that she's going up and she thinks that um, her friend uh, Ching Lian is at the top. Right. So that's where she wants to go. And she thinks Ching Lian is, or, Ch or this, if Ching Lian, if some version of Ching Lian really is in another place, it's a mountain valley. So it's somewhere high up. The idea of like wanting to go to another sort of dimension or layer of reality, I like that. And I re one reason I liked it is because it reminded me a lot of the swamp and story of the slums, something that was binding the stories together. And this is where my story about the rooftop comes in. Ah. Because they go to like an abandoned building uh, in a semi kind of a, a, a zone that is somewhere in the transition between like farmland or wasteland and becoming urban just like swamp the swamp and there's a person living there and it seems like he's the security guard for a building that does nothing so he's like kind of almost like officially mandated squatting he's in some weird like what the hell is his residence and it made me think yeah this seems kind of specifically chinese although there's something similar going on where me and my girlfriend are staying because we live by a stable owned by a family and although we live in a little cabin there's like numerous actual caravans here where members of the family seem to live, but they're not official postal addresses. We think their post just arrives at the main actual house. So like these people remind me a little bit of like Chinese uh, janitors and guards who have got some weird semi-official residence. But yeah, the story is there was a rooftop I would go up to quite a lot because it was near where I lived and it was never locked. But there was sort it was in this big residential tower, but there was this sort of like... Um, what you call it like a, a, a cuboid at the top that could have been anything i assumed it was a storage room but um upon going there like a second or third time i could see there was windows in a door and possibly signs of residence and one time up there i definitely heard someone moving around inside and that reminds me a lot of this story okay. some sort of shadow being living in this non-space mm. yeah i remember something similar by the way in my hometown uh, because I'm not from, I, I live in Sofia, which is the capital of Bulgaria right now, but my hometown is in a, a smaller city. Mm. And uh, my father used to be a principal of this school, which is closed down now. And one time a few years ago, I decided to take my girlfriend to go show her the school, which is completely deserted right now. Right now. Mm. And, uh, no, no one is there. And we go in and suddenly there's this guard there inside. And we, we started talking and uh, I asked him, uh, what is he doing there? Well, of course, first he asked us <laughs> what we're doing there. But, yeah. uh, and he said that he's guarding the place. And I asked him who is paying him for it. And he said, uh, you know, the, the city is paying. Is paying. Mm. And, and this completely deserted school, completely deserted building. I guess maybe uh, still the, the rational explanation here is that some equipment might still be there, but the question is why don't they just move it somewhere safe and just save themselves, uh, like save this person the job of just guarding a completely deserted place? I don't know. Yeah, that, you reminded me, actually, my first year in China. So I was, wasn't living in China. I was in a small, well, yeah, a town, just a town in Zhejiang province. And I got some like, uh, I got asked if I'd like to do some work on the side on a weekend in, uh, it was uh, Xinxia. So just like New Town was the Chinese name. But uh, Xinxia 
was a little bit of a strange name because within Xinxia, there was Xinxia Guzhen, Xinxia ancient town, like a water town, a canal town sort of thing. And um, the teaching job took place at this abandoned school. Just it, it wasn't an ancient school, but it was sort of next to the Guzhen. So it was next door to a Buddhist temple, which I think you uh-huh. could sometimes visit if you're visiting the ancient town. It was an abandoned school, but it still had a gate guard. So the Chinese teacher who ran this sort of like weekend school, when we she drove me there, she goes up to the gate guard and gets the keys or she has some relationship, some lunchy with this gate guard. And then we go and teach a class in this abandoned empty classroom. And yeah, and she tells me the story like, oh yeah, there's a vegetable plot there, but it's disused. This vegetable plot was full of, plot was full of bricks. And um, we can hear lots of dogs barking. And she's like, oh yeah, the, there are lots of stray dogs, but there's one man who collects them all and looks after them. Yeah, there's a Buddhist temple there, but it's built on top of an old one or is semi-abandoned or something. And all of that is so, like, I don't know if it's so Tantra, but it's so, this book, <laughs> it's so Story of the Slums. Stuff we, old and new and abandoned and present and absent, all built on top of each other. So yeah, if I hadn't lived in China, I might not have enjoyed this one as much. Ah, uh, that's interesting, by the way. Mm. I remember I, uh, I had a teacher who in uh in china when i was doing my masters who spoke a little about about sanxue and he was claiming that he being uh almost as old as sanxue or i think he was older uh knows exactly what she's writing about interesting uh, and and he was claiming that the younger generation or foreigners wouldn't know because Maybe he was claiming that she was writing a lot about the Cultural Revolution and we not knowing exactly what took place back then uh, mm. cannot make the analogy. Right. So, but that was, yeah, that, that claim uh, seemed interesting to me because Tan Xue herself claims that she writes universal stories as mm-hmm. well as her favorite writers like Dante and Borges and stuff like that. She claims that uh, their stories are about the, the, the human psyche the human condition and they're universal and they can be read by any reader in the world because human nature is universal it's not uh, it's not national that is interesting because that's given me a thought so i know sandra has said or has been quoted a few times saying the thing she likes about kafka stories is the sense of freedom you get which is like on some level you see what she means because it's like experimental literature but on the other level you're like what those stories are about being trapped they're about the opposite of being free. And it's reminded me of an author I covered on the show called Wang Shuo, who mm. um, was, was Liu Mang, hooligan writer, who was a youth during the Cultural Revolution and used the time. He was able to like skip class, mess about. Um, and I, I have like a, a manhua, like a Chinese comic book that got translated into English. It's part one of an adaptation of one of his books about his school years. And the whole point is he's um, running around having a lot of freedom as a youth during this time you'd think of on the surface as being very unfree. And and he's able to get away with all this because everything is kind of disorganized, chaotic. And how am I trying to, how can I say this? Um, everything is, has been deconfigured, but hasn't been reconfigured. So there's all these spaces that used to be something, but now they allow the number of, you know, it's, it's going to sound really vague, but um, the number of things that are allowed to exist has been squished down by like the orthodoxy of the time. But you know, if, if the only things you can have are revolutionary and Maoist, 
most thing most things and places that exist are going to be reduced to nothing you know like and that gives you space to turn it into whatever you like provided you're not you know doing it if you're doing it privately um that was very vague to the point of uselessness but i'm just trying to get and guess at what that old teacher was saying might have meant right i don't know I, uh, that was interesting about freedom though because uh, recently i had an argument with um, a friend of mine he was claiming we were talking about transgressive literature mm. and he was claiming that kafka is the most transgressive author uh, there is and i was kind of uh, what are you talking about like if anything he is writing about characters not being able to transgress their uh their environment for example the trial is exactly that the trial is uh, a person who gets into the uh how was the word in english like uh, the, the judge system what do you call it the, ju uh, judicial, the judicial system, system. Yeah. judicial system right and he never and it's uh, it's really absurd and he never um makes it through it and he ends up Uh, committing suicide, which I guess you can call a transgression, but uh, I don't know. The, I agree with you that Kafka's stories seem to, to me, or at least the ones I've read, the trial, for example, seem to me about characters who are being trapped and they are not able to transgress from their environment. Yeah, I really don't know what she meant there. So this was like a story where I felt there was a little bit of a, some story some conventions there's like a twist ending where we learn that Qinglian wasn't really or at least the Qinglian that we know in this plane of reality wasn't up in a mountain or a valley she was just hanging out with her uncle so you have a, a twist ending and you have a, some sort of a dramatic relationship between the characters that ties into the surreal themes because Zhu Hua is I guess I don't know I have a little sister who is what is she now 13 13. So I get filtered secondhand all these stories of her um, absolutely fraught relationship with her group of friends. And I'm glad I didn't go through that as a teenage boy. I had some mean friends as a teenage boy, but I imagine girls have it worse. Um, so Juhua is friends with this Qinglian and really wants to be like her and idealizes her and feels like although Qinglian doesn't treat her properly as an equal, she puts up with it because she admires right. this friend so much. So then it makes sense when this weird surreal situation happens that Qinglian is away in a paradise way up above and Juhua is wandering through the darkness. It almost seems weirdly simple for a Tanshua story but then again I didn't spot it on my first reading so it kind of helps kind of prove her point that she wants you to be an engaged reader and not a lazy passive reader. Yeah you have to you have to. Mm. I get uh, tired after I read four or five of her stories i need i need to break yeah usually. which i guess uh, is not so much evidence of the intensity of her stories as of the lack of ability from my side to concentrate yeah i was going to bring this up later but in that well i think in interviews but in especially in that uh, stubborn dirty snow video She talks about very being very concerned for younger readers which again like at the surface level you're like wait an old intellectually minded experimental writer cares about the youth why but it makes sense if she hates like lazy postmodernity the postmodern like idea of everything is play truth doesn't matter the kind of laziness that is there in postmodernism versus like the really sincere commitment that's there in modernism 
of course she's worried that our attention spans are being destroyed. Of course she's worried that we, you know, do things like play video games, right. stuff that, I mean, I like video games, but I'm not going to pretend that there's much depth to them. Movies might have a bit more depth. Maybe, she, I don't know, maybe she likes movies. But the general, like, killing of our attention span and the, also the way that um, things, our lives are so much full of crap now, so it's harder to find time to, um, to read. You can yeah. find time, and you're kind of people who say they don't have time. I think they're making excuses, but yeah. you can sympathize because there's so many stupid sure. things fighting for your attention now that absolutely maybe wouldn't in like cultural revolution China if you have quiet room and some books. I agree. So uh, again, even if uh, I don't get all of the contents of the of her stories, I. I still somehow want to make this exercise and try to understand. And I know that's that's another thing actually that um, my the, this the same teacher me uh, he he and I were talking at one point, and I confess that I don't get everything from his lectures. That I just the the, the language is a barrier to me because my Chinese wasn't good wasn't mm. so good back then, and it isn't so good right now as well. And uh, he said, yeah, maybe you don't understand everything, but you want to understand it. That's the important thing. Uh, and right. I, I think that's the important thing while reading Sanskrit. Of course, we are not obliged to try to understand every piece of literature that comes across our eyes and hands. But uh, I think Sanskrit is worth it somehow. I don't know. Mm. I tried. I, I've read only one of her novels. She started writing novels at the turn of the century, I think. And uh, I don't know, I don't remember having a very good experience with it. Um, there were parts that really struck me and they were so beautiful and uh, wonderful, but there was so much th things that were just unnecessary to me. Maybe it's the problem is uh, with me, but I had a, a really hard time. And I, as much as I tried to concentrate, I didn't manage to get out much of this novel that I read. It was Five Spice Street. Right. I think it's, it's her first novel. Mm -hmm. But I'm, but I'm eager, eager to try more. I'm eager to, to read that uh, Love in the New Millennium as well to try. Mm -hmm. I have it right here with me. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, my experience with these four stories, like I said, the, the long one that could be like a novella or something, Story of the Slums. Yeah, I was kind of zoning out, tuning out at points, but these three shorter ones, um, I, I got something out of and like right. now knowing how she writes, like not really editing, just a blast mm -hmm. an hour at a time, that does sound a lot more condu conducive to writing short stories than writing novels. Because novels, you know, novels, are, are, well, novel, a good novel doesn't have to be anything, but um, as I understand it, a novel needs to kind of reference itself. It needs to build a world. It needs to, it needs to give the reader a helping hand to, you know, keep reading, keep their interest. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I think it's well. I'm just saying uh, the conventional wisdom here, but you can experiment a lot more in a short story um, because you don't have as many kind of you don't have the the constraints that length lumps on you. Um, yeah, so yeah. that would make a lot of sense to me. You need some kind of consistency in uh, long form writing as mm -hmm. well, which is um, I don't know. Maybe for right if you write every day, you can achieve it, but. Still, it seems harder to do it if you write 300 pages than if you write 30. Mm, yeah. There is a thing just from Cro-Mountain I want to read. Um, 
so just an example of like with close reading really helped me because in a lot of good surreal short stories things kind of slip by you and you're in a really good surreal short story you're like wait when did uh, everything become so strange i didn't notice so this second time reading um crow mountain i flipped back a page or two which was a bit perilous as i was reading in the bath uh, but i managed to not drop the book and find i was looking for the bit where uh juhua like crossed the threshold into a weird space like did it i wasn't sure did it happen gradually was it said outright like what and i found that basically the transition into like another world is never said outright but it's kind of done off screen or between the lines okay so i'll read it and you should see what i mean uh, her uncle lived in the basement jingyan knocked several times but he didn't come to the door jingyan said he's always like this she said we could go inside first and look around as soon as she touched the door it opened she dragged me in the door closed with a creak we could see nothing inside jingyan jingyan where are you i sounded like a mosquito my my voice was distorted Juhua, I'm in the mountain valley. Take it easy. Just lift your feet high and walk. Her answer came from somewhere far away, and I thought she must be somewhere above me. So if you're just reading passively, you're like, oh, they've got separated. That's weird. But if you're reading again, you're like, oh, right, okay. So it wasn't said outright, but some when the door opened or when Juhua was dragged in, something happened that wasn't stated, and now the two... Well, we learn later the two have been separated. Real Qinglian is with her uncle now in reality. Juhua is in some void space and imaginary Qinglian or whoever she is, is way up in the mountain valley. And something is going on with reality because Juhua's voice is now distorted. So yeah, not even if this, if this was like a sci-fi or a fantasy story, there's so much going on there. Um, but it, it, and it, uh, the reason I like this story, it does work on like a fairy tale, like a fa- like a fairy story where, you know, yeah. like a Europe. Uh, I guess I, I guess these are all over Europe. But like, there's a thing in Scottish or Celtic folk stories where you go off to the world of the fairies, you meet them, everything is a little bit topsy turvy. You might be able to return, you might never return, and that was a vibe I got here. Like she's entered some kind of Chinese equivalent of like a fairy world, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's a matter of perception as well. So we could imagine that they're actually inhabiting, they're, they're still together, but they're just perceiving the reality of the house differently. Mm. So uh, maybe uh, Qinglian has already been there a few times, she has, and uh, the environment is familiar to her, but uh, Juhua is new to the place. So it's strange to her and scary and dark. I don't know. Yeah, one of the keywords I had was mental spaces. And I was thinking more in terms of like um, when you read a book or when you remember something, you create, you're trying to visualize a space in your head. And there's something a little bit like that here where, yeah, like you said, uh, Ching Lian is seeing something. Well, she, she's like, it's really dark. So she's actually not seeing something. She's trying to visualize the space in her head, even though it's a void. Sorry, Juhua is doing that. The Qinglian she thinks is real is yeah. in like a mountain valley, and she's Juhua isn't seeing the trees. She's trying to like imagine them, or she's having them described to her to to admit something about myself. Although listeners will probably regular listeners will know, I really miss Shanghai, and often I'm trying to like, what did it look like? What did it look like? What did um, Wukang Lu look like? What did Koreatown look like? What did um, uh oh no what are the districts what did this so and so how would i get back to so and so part of 
Pudong district where I delivered that Shanghai magazine one time and I can try and remember it. I can't use Google Street View. I think technology is important in this. Google Street View is amazing because you can visualize anywhere by dropping little orange man on the map. Uh, for China, you can't do that. Um, you could probably use a Chinese map app, uh, but it's not as good, well, especially for someone who's Chinese search engine abilities aren't that great like mine. It's not very convenient. But yeah, like I've been a little bit more consciously aware of the power or lack of power the mind has to create space and reading this book have a crack at it again like because i've done this before in other books i've really liked like uh, there's one called i am the messenger by marcus duzak where he creates really uh like his picture it's it's sydney i think they're in but it's like the outskirts or the scuzzy bits but it's painted in not it's painted in quite like a mostly quite like a welcoming quirky way and i got so obsessed with the book i was rereading it and trying to think like okay rather than passively imagining the scene i'm going to read all the exact descriptions and going by them try and create the accurate version of what it should look like but you can't because that's not how books work you're always creating a space in your head um but yeah if you're reading more closely you'll be doing less passive generation and more i don't know engaged ev- evidence-based generation of what the story should look like yeah <laughs> I, that was a really that was a really rambly ramble. Um, <laughs> is there anything you can say to that? Oh, actually, my next question was literally, "Have we missed anything? Um, have we missed anything?" I don't know. I guess I guess we have. I mean, I'm sure we have. Right. But I think I don't have anything to say about these specific stories. And what about the book as a whole? Um, do you have any thoughts on it as a whole? Because especially since you've read a lot of other Sanchez and I have not. So right. how do you think this book reads versus other stuff she's done? Well, we haven't. I, I haven't read the book. I, I read only the four stories. Uh, right. So okay. Yeah, but I think that uh, this book is compiled from her work from this century, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's all pretty recent. Yeah. I yeah. She, I don't uh, believe it says exactly, but you just keep talking. I'll check that. Yeah, I think she published four books of short stories like 10 years ago or something. And I, I think that this volume is a compilation of uh, of these four books, of stories selected from these four books. Right. Uh, so, so, yeah. And I don't know. I really haven't read enough. I've read two other short stories collections by her. And they're all, like you said, really different. And at the same time, Kind of the same so the way i read them is kind of similar to the way i, I read those four stories and the things i kind of extrapolated from them pretty much the same i guess which maybe times i wouldn't approve i guess she would want me as a perfect reader to improve my perception of her stories and get more and more stuff out of it out of them right but yeah it's it's pretty much it's pretty much that i cannot really say that there are or there aren't any difference i looked up the copyright page and the copyright page said most of the stories in this book were originally published in chinese for details of original and first chinese publications see the credits page and the credits oh, yeah. it's a really detailed credits page. right right um, there was a credits page yeah yeah so if anyone's interested in these not just the book's journey in chinese but the Sorry, not, not just the story's journey in Chinese, but the story's journey in translation. And yeah. also three of the stories have appeared in four. So yeah, it's extremely detailed. Um, I suppose it's Yale, Yale Books, an academic or a university press. Right. So 
not not too surprising but yeah it's um useful for people who like to track that stuff i guess what is uh, specific about sanshu is uh that um, when she started writing in the 80s there were a lot of there was this avant-garde movement so like we said yuhua gofe and uh, sutung everyone was writing the, these weird stories and she was considered part of that and she actually has said that yuhua's early stories are actually worth something mm. and achung's achung's as well by the way uh but she claims that after that in the 90s everything everyone uh, started writing realist fiction and mm. this is where it all co- came down for them like they ended up being uh worthwhile reading uh, authors worthwhile reading and she seems to be the only one who keeps on doing this weird fiction that in the 90s stopped having that kind of huge impact and market as it had in the 80s because in the 80s there there it was a very huge literary scene and there were many many magazines and publishing houses that were really thirsty for like hungry for new fiction and experimental fiction and that all changed in the 90s but she kept on doing it and she keeps on doing it until now and uh, i think that's i don't know that's uh it's something yeah i find it kind of weird um or surprising because i'd heard about this um avant-garde way before when we what me and Eric Abrahamson uh, did a uh, flock of brown birds and he mentioned yeah because of those there was an influx kind of a delayed influx of all this modernist writing from uh, from english well not just from english actually from western literature and chinese readers and writers really took to it but i didn't know any authors who were writing this like xianfeng um avant-garde to sure accept gofei but then reading up on sanshu she said oh yeah i used to be part of this um block of experimental avant-garde writers you know you are sutong and i said huh sutong avant-garde because <laughs> the only sutong i've read has been like very realist maybe yeah. slightly quirky but the idea of him writing like a david lynch style story yeah. I'm like, what But well, I can I can believe it I suppose. You who for example he writes very realistic novels mm. but his early stories are really really violent and messy and uh, mm. I like them a lot. Interesting. Um I've actually seen, kind of seen that in Gofe too. So I've read um Fox Brown Birds which is a very early work of his yeah. and then there's another work in translation uh The Invisibility Cloak which is kind of um I don't know it's it's set in the real world it's realist there is a little weirdness bubbling under the surface more so at the end and um, but i was like oh interesting he seems to have uh, moved closer to reality and i'm now reading i got another another review copy of the uh, peach blossom paradise which is um it's set at like the end of the qing dynasty it's kind of weird and quirky there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface but it's basically realistic um certainly doesn't seem crazy and experimental and it seems to be doing that thing i see most of chinese literature do of like here are the stages of trauma china's been through in the last 150 years a character is going to live their life and go through it step by step by step and i was like oh right so um he's he still seems to be a great writer but he's certainly like um i don't know it's it's not a david lynch he's not writing david lynch stories anymore yeah. um yeah and i could see why someone like tanshi would be like She, I don't know she kind of reminds me of like uh maybe the the teenager who got into heavy metal age 14 with all their friends and then their friends all gave up on that <laughs> because you know 
didn't get them invited to the parties or whatever. And she's the one who's like, what are you doing? We had something good. You've all sold out. Da, 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 da. That's a wonderful comparison. I love it. I could see her listening to metal. I, I can see her listening to metal too. Although she probably listens to classical music, like the, the you know, the, the, the punk rock of the classical music. What would that be like? The, the early 90s? What, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, I'm not really versed in classical music, but you know, if, if there's metal in the classical music, she would listen to that, like something that is really wild and crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to pretend I can talk about classical no. music though. Me neither. Uh, no. All right. Um, so that's, this is going to be a longer episode. That's fine, but let's keep moving. Um, how to read the book. Okay. So I think we'd said before, this is something where I'll, talk about things I saw reading up on Tantra and then we can bounce off that because the first okay. the first thing was about Logos and Nus. Uh, I believe this was an interview she did again so it's uh, trying to bring two opposite things together so she has this theory that people have a Logos a rational language based um, faculty and Nus, which is like mm, they're both yourself but your Nus, I think from what she said it's your individuality and your creative energy And this was really, she was tying into her idea of writing and reading literature as performance. So she was trying to say, when I write my stories, it comes from my noose, my creative wellspring, but my logos, my rational thought, directs my noose. And the most productive way I can use them is I make them fight. So my, it's like, I don't know, you know, when you have like a, your intuition leads you one way and you try to like uh, intercept your intuition, but then you also your rational mind points you one way but you don't want your rational mind to be the master and her way of thinking about that seems to be they have to find some kind of a way to wrestle and that's that's how the literature is created and she wants you as the reader to do the same thing i like i, I don't know i mean it's such a struggle for me to get my head around what she meant that i don't i can't really easily relate it to um being a reader or a writer more than to say i think as weird as it is there is some common sense to it too. Like I can see what she's on about, but I don't think I have anything very deep to say about it. What, do you, yeah, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I guess it makes sense because especially after, if we have to put it in, and we don't have to, but we, if we have to put it in a historical context, again, literature before that was uh, always about black and white. Like uh, if mm. you're not good, you're bad. And if you're not uh, with the revolution, revolution and stuff like that and she with her stories is trying somehow to dissolve these dichotomies like uh, all kinds of dichotomies good and bad male and female uh, light and dark and to just again take us to this primordial state of things yeah one of those 90s essays uh, i read on her that was trying to look at her politics their way of doing that was using her life story so they said she was raised by these devout marxists in a marxist country and what happened to them all their kind of high-minded ideas just got them in trouble and so the kind of purely rational spiritual or at least like spiritual in the sense of like living in a world of ideas and trying to be rational and philosophical led to suffering right. or it led to rejection by the powers that be so the essay writer was saying her sort of workaround or her response to that is if she writes this impossible to nail down stuff that refuses to work in the categories anyone else assigns she has some sort of space to do her thing and yet outside of you know the 
maybe that's what she means by Kafka. If you if you have your own framework and you don't let anyone else's framework inform how you write, if you preserve your own light, no one can mess with you. Do you see what I mean? If you don't even right. speak a language that will get you in trouble, yeah. then you are in charge. You have freedom. Yeah, and about what you said about performance, I think I remember uh, one of her essays where she says, it's again about death, that there is danger from all sides in her stories. So de death looms all the time. Mm. And what her performances do is that they show not the victory of death, but, uh, and I'm quoting here, the hope and glory of uh, life. Mm. So, so that is that is there all the time, and it looms all the time. But she celebrates, you know, as much as cliche cliche as it sounds, she celebrates life. And yeah, I guess she said that her stories are uh, kind of there are performances. So outside of them, she's not really this weird old lady <laughs> interested in abject things uh which she, she's just i guess an, a normal person but uh, what she does is like these meaningful performances that have this certain kind of aim that she's set to go after yeah speaking of performance i should mention now before i forget um she she doesn't seem to do it very consistently but she refers to tanshua in the third person right it would be more accurate to say she refers to Tantra in the third person sometimes because like in that um, Dirty Stubborn Snow video, she speaks English and she's got a very strong accent, but it's very clear English. So actually, I really enjoy listening to it. And she's a yeah. great speaker. <laughs> but she sometimes she says, my experimental literature, and then other times it's the experimental literature of Tantra and the two are interchangeable. But um right. She's not saying outright, yeah, Tantra is a performance, but she says my work is a performance and she says right. Tantra is some kind of a persona. It's not just me. It's not just like Sutong being Sutong. Yeah, it's kind of a role, I guess. It's weird. I don't know. I guess, I mean, you can't really accurately imagine any author's life unless you're actually their friend. But on one hand, in one way of looking at it, I can see her just being a very normal old lady. On the other hand, I can see her being just as eccentric as she seems. But it's not my business. She's not my friend. So Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, she, she does seem like she has this crazy look into her eyes that <laughs> when, when you see a portrait of hers, she does, she does seem weird, but like mm. in a good way. But we don't know, you know. I mean, we can only speculate and do we need to speculate? I don't know. I don't think so. No, she seems really switched on. Um, like she doesn't like it makes sense because she's so insistent on being active not passive she's so insistent on like the importance of reality again you wouldn't if you come into the story blind you'd think this is a surrealist this is someone who doesn't care about reality but as we've said already she cares so much about reality she talks about logic a lot i think that's mm -hmm. the thing when she talks about the west or western philosophy the thing she's seeing there is rationality yeah, I didn't go into this so much, but she she doesn't, you know, I don't, on the podcast, I don't try and say, I try to avoid saying the West is this, China is that, or the East. Because, yeah. well, number one, I, you can you can generalize and look very stupid if you, you can, you can say stupid things by generalizing, but also, um, you know, it's the internet. People will call you all sorts of mean words if you um, essentialize the wrong things. Um, yeah. But she doesn't, she doesn't seem to care about that. She has, in her sort of way of viewing things, she's happy to call herself like a Chinese, an Easterner, 
this is the West, this is the East. They are opposed. They can be unified. But again, maybe it's all part of like a, a, a performance. Oh, sorry, sorry. What I was trying to say was, yeah, she's insistent that you can construct things. Reality is important. Um, there is a rational spirit. She sees like I'm not. This is not me saying this. This is me trying to quote her. She believes that there's like a rational spirit in this whatever came out of like modernism or Western philosophy, and she's that's what she's trying to make use of or sustain in her writing, which just seems on like on the deep level, you're like, yeah, do it, Sancho, lead us to the uh-huh. truth. When you read the stories, you're like, reason, rationality. What are you talking about? It's a rat running through hell. My intuition doesn't know what to think. Doesn't know whether to be like you are really onto something or you're cuckoo. Um, I right. think she's, she's more onto something than cuckoo or not your cuckoo. Um, <laughs> you are deliberately overcomplicating things. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And there seem to be a lot of uh, those cases in the 80s, exactly in, the, in, in China, for example. There, I remember this, there was this uh, poetry manifest that I read. It was, it was really interesting. I read it like 10 years ago and... I was really enthusiastic about it. And it's a manifest uh, of this new poetry magazine that I was about to get started publishing in uh, the 80s. And uh, theory was really very interesting to me. And then I started reading the poems. And to me, it had nothing to do with the theory. Mm. So so again, I, I think I, mm, I actually enjoy more reading Tan Xue's essays because they're a lot more clear and yeah I can understand everything she says basically and but still it's not uh, it's not without any effort from my side mm-hmm. it's not without effort from my side but yeah and I think I don't know if she if someone would claim that she actually achieves what she states that she wants to achieve in her essays in her stories I guess you say that she doesn't really, and I tend to agree with you. Mm. So I think yeah. I think she does to some extent, but I don't know. Um, oh yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, to some extent, like it's boring, boring high school essay answer. To some extent, she does. To some extent, she doesn't. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I should probably it'd be worth reading right now because um, th- this wouldn't have been on your PDF because it's on the jacket sleeve here. Yeah, um, it's. The blurb for the book, and I get the okay. feeling that they were trying to use her ideas to sell the book, and it kind of didn't help me. Um, right. It helped me more after the fact. Um, so here's what it says: Sanshua's stories observe no obvious conventions of plot or characterization. Okay, that's that's true. That is the only rule they follow. I don't think that's true. No. No. Instead, <clears throat> they tend to limb a disordered and poetic state given structure by philosophical wonder and emotional rigor. Again, like, I see what they're on about, but I hate the sentence so much. Um, <laughs> combining elements of both Chinese materiality, love of physical things, and Western abstract thinking, Tan Shue invites her readers into an immersive landscape that blends empirical fact, empirical fact and illusion, mixes the physical and the spiritual, and probes the space between consciousness and oblivion. So the thing where it does exactly what she does and like binarizes China and the West, and China is associated with like love of physical things. Yeah. If it was a Western person writing that, I'd be like, and you assume it is because it's Yale books. It's like, okay, you think Chinese people love physical things? Like, steady on. But maybe that's Sancho's idea 
but they haven't communicated what she means by it very clearly. So I feel like that didn't really help me understand what the book was going to be about because the love of physical things in the book, I don't really see it. The physical world is often, like in Story of the Slums, all the physical things hurt you and poison you and kill you. Yeah, but but still, I, I guess what they could mean is that she doesn't describe uh, her ideas, but she uses like material things to right. compose stories that kind mm. of carry her ideas. That's very and true. Yeah, I guess that's the only way she thinks that she can do it. Yeah, but I guess it's maybe appropriate because even the blurb had me going like, ah, just like <laughs> the story did. Um, so even the blurb is unconventional. But that—that's I don't know why why it reminded me of uh, the the thing that I, when I was translating this the story I had in the mountain, I was certain that in Bulgarian it had to be in the present tense because mm. it seems that uh, these things. It, the, the way it's told, my, my impression is that um, characters are reacting to the things that happen to them at, at the moment. Totally. So yeah. uh, m- maybe uh, reading these four stories, that was something that was kind of like an obstacle to uh, really get into the story. Because I think I have one example here. Let me just find it. Where is it? Uh, yeah, right. This is from uh, Story of the Slums. So it's a really short excerpt. Um, this was the very master who had fed me poisonous mushrooms, wasn't it? I went in. Hey, this really was his home. Great. This was great. I had to return to the slums. To me, this is absolutely, it should have been present tense. I don't know. Because there, there's great, there's, this is great. And mm-hmm. it seems that the, the character is reacting at the moment. I don't know. Uh, some somehow the past tense doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I can see what you mean. Um, this this is another thing that threw me off, not in a good way at first, because I'm sure I read somewhere that Tantra said I've had lots of different translators. I think my favorite English translators are Karen Gernant, Gernant and Chen Ziping. Um, they do my uh-huh. stories great justice, and that's translated to this book. And I was like, eh, is it, why they don't like the translation doesn't. I hope they don't listen, but um, I think it could have been better. Yeah, well, for example, what was this about uh, like the, the names in the story of the slums? We had Chinese names with Pinin. We had Ricky at some point. And, uh, Ricky, an <laughs> anti-shrimp. Yeah. Right, anti-shrimp we had. So, so th- there were three different ways of um, translating names, which was Woody kind of, I don't know. Well. It, yeah. It, it, it didn't seem... Uh, consistential or what, what do you call it like consistent yeah consistent exactly consistent yeah. to me no i think yeah the names bothered me um but then i wasn't seeing the chinese so it's hard for me to know what to make of those um I, I really think we should hurry up hurry up a bit um yeah, yeah. right so there was a thing there's a question about should we treat the stories as like puzzles or things to solve um two things i'll say before i throw it over to you um yeah reading her listening to her talk about i'll read the quote and I'll make my point. So this is a quote I wrote out from, oh, I'm loading the page, damn it. Um, a quote I typed out and tweeted from that uh, Stubborn Dirty Snow video uh, where she said, even, so she said, every one of my stories is a riddle. You might call them Sanchez riddles. 
If readers do not take part in the performance, my work is unfinished. It must continue waiting in the dark. So the thing about riddles, um, I think she later said in that video, if a reader just treats my story as a, a puzzle and makes superficial guesses about what it means, they've failed. So she's like, my stories are riddles, but by the way, don't only treat them as riddles. And that reminded me of um, the DVD box, or at least my dad's copy of the DVD of Mulholland Drive by David Lynch. Uh, have you seen that film? Oh, yeah. Several times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the DVD inside the box, there's a little booklet. And it said it says something like, here's some clues that will help you understand the movie. And it was like a list of things that appear. Doesn't tell you what you mean, just tells you to watch out for them. And if you have clues, the implication is you can solve what the movie means. And I watched it like age 17, 18. And was like, this means nothing. This is stupid. I don't like it. David Lynch has annoyed <laughs> me. But then like rewatching and listening to people's interpretations without spoiling it, it is pretty, once you know what to look for, it is pretty easy to see what's going on in Mulholland Drive. And a lot of David Lynch's stories actually like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, it's almost the same story with a different character and that's almost true for inland empire as well um so the idea of these things being an abstract puzzle that you can piece together interests me um uh, yeah so the question is what are this what are we supposed to do with the stories is do you think it's better to treat them as a, a puzzle some kind of an argument or a point being made or just like a raw sensory experience. I mean, I would probably the boring answer is they're all three of these things. But do you have anything to say apart from the boring answer? Uh, I guess we kind of talked about different ways to perceive and different things you, we can uh, draw from these stories while we were discuss, discuss, discussing the specific ones. I guess what I want to do is throw in another obvious interpretation of or way of interpretation of these stories of her stories is that we can uh, look at them as dreams but dreams I guess in the um, uh, psychoanalytical uh, sense and I've taken a quote from a book that I really liked when I read it like 15 years ago I think it's a literary theory an introduction by Terry Eagleton and there's a chapter about psychoanalysis there mm. and there's a sentence that goes like this dreams are enough to demonstrate that the unconscious has the admirable resourcefulness of a lazy ill-supplied chef who slings together the most diverse ingredients into a cobbled together stew substituting one spice for another which he, he's out of making do with whatever has arrived in the market that morning as the dream will draw opportunistically on the day's residues, mixing in events which took place during the day or sensations felt during sleep with images drawn deep from our childhood. So what I sometimes think about her stories is that they are like a really messy but a very potent dream, meaning it's a potential glimpse into our unconsciousness so in her stories order is almost non-existent no one is acting rationally everything is in, in a primordial state and that's the state of our unconscious where there is fear disorientation ambiguity and everything could happen and this is as beautiful as it is terrifying 
And I think, again, maybe I'm repeating myself, but this, it's important we keep this part of our being accessible. Mm. Me- meaning, I think, it's, I think it's very healthy to keep some kind of connection between our conscious and some consci- subconscious selves. Because if our subconsciousness gets buried too deep, then it starts making trouble, trouble that we're not aware of. And maybe that's, that's where Sanxue's admiration for the Western culture comes from. She claims that Western writers, the ones that she admires, and philosophers too, uh, achieved this um, exploration of the deeper layers of human, human psyche that no one in China was able to do, except maybe Lu Xun and, of course, Sanxue. That is a really good point to end our deep discussion and go into right. fun stuff, I think, because <laughs> my brain is breaking. Um, yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so fun <laughs> questions, silly questions, my favorite kind of questions. We try and do a Chinese word of the day for every episode. Right. Uh, do you have one to hand? Yeah, I have one, but I don't, I don't know if it's a fun one, though, because it will still lead us on a way to discuss serious stuff. No, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. When I was doing my master's again, I didn't do any research or any papers on Sanxue, but I got interested into her. So I downloaded some papers from Chinese academics about her stories. And there was this interesting term that was used in some of them. Uh, so in Chinese, uh, aesthetics would be shunmei, which would mean literally uh, appreciation of beauty or more like uh, consideration of beauty. And the word that these scholars used for Sanxue's stories was shenchou, uh, which would mean consideration of ugliness. And I actually uh, disagree that ugliness is a very productive term to look uh, to your stories from this perspective. Uh, because what I, what I think is everything that seems ugly in her stories, like for example, in, in the four that we read, there's, there's blood, dirt, pus, stench, diarrhea, guts, insects, flesh falling off, rotten stuff. And yeah, we can, we can call it ugly, we can call it gore even. Uh, but it's not really because the tone is uh, it's different. It's more like Sanxue is trying to lay bare before us everything we consider abject, everything we've abjected away from our human identity. And I have this, I'm interested in this uh, French philosopher called Julia Kristeva. I don't know if you've heard about her. This is, this, this is the abject woman, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So she claims that abject is everything that somehow... Well, it's a complicated theory, but uh, abject is everything that somehow shakes the fundaments of, of the subject. And I think mm. that's what Sanxue kind of does with, with these things. Not only these, but the, the, the stories as a whole. So let's, let's make this word of the day, shenchou, which would be consideration of ugliness. I'm going to put, are these the right characters? I've just sent them in the chat. Yeah, no, that's, that's the wrong chou. That's, uh, that will be consideration of smelly stuff. Or <laughs> well, now I feel stupid. Consideration of stink. Right. So it's a different <laughs> undesirable cho. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can make sure that I'm not using the wrong cho when I'm, uh, I'm starting in the show notes. Sure. Um, yeah. 
yeah, the abject. I hadn't thought of that. That's one where like um, I, I had a friend, um, an, an American guy in Shanghai who was very interested slash hung up on the abject. He was actually okay. scared of abject stuff. Um, uh-huh. And occasionally that comes to me whenever I'm these days reading something about like the uncanny or the weird. It's like, well, everything that someone who's a Freudian calls the uncanny, someone who likes, I don't know, um, the weird literature I like these days might call it the weird. And uh, my friend, whatever I call the weird, my friend would just call the un- the, the abject. But I think that's me being cynical. I think there are differences between the thing, these different things. And yeah, the abject seems right for some of these um, tantra stories because yeah, there's like they're so. It's not just that they're spooky; they can get very icky. Mm. Like the pain seems to be such a thing in the story of the swans. Yeah, it's it's not like abject bodily fluids but there's just a certain kind of like griminess sometimes Mm. that i wouldn't call uncanny or weird but i might call object and yeah we've gone and stopped having fun going about serious right right yeah let's Uh, continue with the fun questions okay so um the next fun question is if each i've well i've gone and made it hard and said if each of the four stories (laughs) a drink what would they be if that's too hard we can just do one one nice abject drink, like some sour <laughs> milk or something. Uh, that's interesting, sour milk. Uh, here's the thing: I'm, I'm, I don't drink much stuff except water and tea, and maybe elderflower juice and yogurt. Mm. So, how about you go for this one? Hmm. Actually, I was thinking about that. Like, what would what drink would I do for all of them? I actually forgot I was being annoying and saying every every story should be a different drink. But I was thinking I, maybe something like fizzy water i was just trying to think of something outside the box and i thought maybe i could make some kind of argument for fizzy water one because it has bubbles just like the story of the swamp uh but also it's it's base material is as natural and part of the world as about you can possibly be most of the world is water although you know salt water um but it's been some mod human modern uh it's been modernized or humanized by adding gas and it's become something on un- that tastes completely unnatural. Like fizzy water is one of the weirdest drinks out there, I think. <laughs> and yet the flavor is the form. You don't, it doesn't taste like water. It doesn't even taste like flavoring. It tastes like its form, which is bubbles. So there you go. I like My literature degree. <laughs> Three years like of literature degree made me a good bullshitter. So I go. was thinking, I was thinking that it should be some kind of. I, I mean, I'm not. I don't drink a lot of alcohol. I drink almost none. But I was thinking that it should be some kind of a cocktail that when you when you when you smell it, it's it's one feeling, and when you um, when you when you take it in your mouth, it's another feeling, and when you swallow it, it it's yet another. So it it mm. changes. So it's it's one thing, but it. It gives you this roller coaster of a, an experience, which I think uh, are Tanshu stories. Yeah, um, I've noticed. So I've only been doing these drink questions for a while, and I noticed two. I think the two most common ones are well, maybe three common ones: a drink that will get you really drunk. Right. Uh, that's one. A coffee, a really black coffee that will get you really focused, or a cocktail that will do lots of funky <laughs> things. But yeah, I think that that works here. Some sort of. Did you ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Uh, sure, a long time ago, though. Hmm. Do you remember there's a, a cocktail that the characters like to drink called the Pangalactic Gargle Blaster? No, no. Uh, well, it's like a joke drink. And I had an uncle who used to, well, he's, yeah, my parents' generation, so he was young when these books were cool. Well, 
they were never cool, but when they were um, part of pop culture, at the forefront uh. of pop culture, uh, he would make the Pine Galactic Gargle Blaster. And he was, he was using liquids that would layer on top of each other and not mix. Right. Yeah. So I don't think that really describes the stories, but it's vert- verticality again. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, right. Last question. Uh, please feel free to give a very silly answer or a proper answer. Uh, Tanshua says a reader who fails her stories, if they don't get anything out of them, should train, come back and try again. Um, I was When I heard her say this on doing her talk, I was out for a run and I thought of when I used to watch Pokemon and Ash would try and beat a gym leader, he'd get his ass kicked, he'd go away and maybe the same episode or the next episode he'd come back and he'd have gone through something and he'd win. So I think because... I don't go to real gyms, so that's my idea of training is training Pokemon. But yeah, I was running as well, so I was thinking like, yeah, striving, improving yourself, that could apply to being a reader too. Great. But what training would you suggest for listeners trying to, um, you know, beat Sanshua, the gym leader, and get her badge? All right. I don't know if I have anything silly to say though. I like yours, mm-hmm. so I don't know. She, uh, I remember she she says in one essay that uh, uh, reading her stories doesn't require much. Uh, prior knowledge it mm. just requires uh, curiosity and uh, desire to know yourself and mm. that, that's it i guess and um, reading more weird stuff and watching weird movies i kind of remember that when i first got into sansue i watched the um, the tenant by roman polanski which again can be interpreted in the in similar ways as sansue stories like someone uh someone moving into an apartment and uh their his neighbors confusing them or trying to claim that he's the previous uh owner of the uh, like inhabitant of the apartment and suddenly or, or not suddenly but uh slowly uh this tenant starts getting convinced that she's he's actually the previous tenant and she com- and he commits suicide just like the previous tenant mm. so again this is um this is some kind of i mean i'm sorry this is not a silly, silly answer but uh again um, what what our environment kind of does to us yeah mm. yeah that's actually that works for me too because one of my favorite films is uh, a roman polanski film it's ninth gate and the reason I watched this one, uh, I got a recommendation from a film studies teacher during my undergrad, and she didn't recommend it for it's because it was deep. She said this is a perfect '90s movie because it's a mystery. There's books, there's old libraries, there's Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp smoking lots of cigarettes, Johnny Depp getting drunk all the time. This is oh right, I've seen this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we're talking about earlier about the promise of the premise. The sheer sort of vibing of watching Johnny Depp looking for ancient books and looking, you know, drinking and smoking and being mysterious. So it works on that level, like the sensory level. Uh, it works as a poppy sort of mystery, but there's all sorts of strange hidden levels. There's a lot of stuff you um, could go looking for online. There's like guides to the movie and the secret things online. And it's a literary adaptation. So if you go and buy the book, you can see what things they added, what things they took out. Um, and it has, I think it has a lot of thematic crossovers with other stuff in Roman Polanski's movies, um, like a, a darkness winning or a main character being swallowed by the darkness. Yeah. 
and then you can look at Roman Polanski's actual life, where he went from, I don't want to get too icky here, but he went from being a victim of the Manson family to being a real predator himself, a real bastard yeah. himself. Yeah. And his family had the whole trauma of the Holocaust way back in them. So, yeah, um, a good example of another thing that has a surface reading and has mm. all sorts of stuff going on underneath the surface, if you, if you, mm. if you are curious enough to look for it. Yeah. But yeah, um, God, I think we're <laughs> at the end now. We're on the further reading questions. Almost there. Yeah, yeah. So do you have anything to recommend for our listeners, maybe based on what we've been talking about? No, I'm going to recommend a totally random thing. Perfect. There's this, um, there's this writer called uh, Nikolai Grozny, who is a Bulgarian. Mm. And his story is that he went to music school in Sofia, and then he got accepted to Berkeley, where he studies, studied jazz piano, I think. And then I think after three years or something, he suddenly snapped and uh, went to India to become a Buddhist monk. And he has this autobiographical book called Turtle Feet. He has written it in English, mm. which is about his experience in uh, India. And it's really funny and really surreal and really smart. I think it's, uh, he has become one of my favorite writers. And since he's Bulgarian, I know that he's not really well known. He also has another one in English called uh, Wunderkind, which is about his years in the music school in Sofia. But I, I think Turtle Feet, feet is better so that's my recommendation cool what uh, what year did he go out to india do you know oh must have been early zeros maybe oh right mm. yeah cool. something like that okay and uh, last question what are you reading just now well i usually read several books at a time so i'm gonna say one english one chinese and one bulgarian the English one is uh, High Culture Fever by Jin Wang, which is this uh, nonfiction book about the cultural debates in China in the 80s, which mm. were really, really interesting times, the, the 80s. And I think Jin Wang does uh, a really, really good job digging into it and analyzing it. So it's uh, not only, mm, it's not only a, presentation of what was going on she offers a very interesting point of view and her analysis i think it's it's really good it was published in the 90s it was written in the 90s and i think it was recently republished so there should be a new edition that has come out i don't know the publishing house but i really recommend it and besides that zing wang has an anthology of chinese avant-garde fiction so she's also a translator so I haven't read that one, but uh, it's, in it's interesting to, to read it as well. But uh, High Culture Fever is a, is a really good one, uh, and I recommend it. I'm still reading it. It's kind of intense, so it's taking me a while. The Chinese one I'm reading is, um, we mentioned a few times, well, I mentioned a few times the writer Ma Yuan, who was part of the avant-garde uh, movement in the 80s. He was kind of the guy who introduced metafiction, into the Chinese literature scene back then. Mm. And since then, he has not written so much fiction and he has become a university teacher of literature and creative writing, I think. So I'm reading his book of literature, literature lectures. 
uh, in which he, in his very casual way, talks about literature and literary history and the 80s, avant-garde, different writers he likes, movies as well. It's called Xiao Chuo Mima, which is which would be the cult of fiction, something like that. The one I'm reading in Bulgarian is uh, a book by a Polish writer who's called Witold Gom, I don't know, Gombrowicz, 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 something like that. Uh, his novel is called Cosmos, and I think it's been translated into English as well. And it's a really weird psychological tale that in which nothing really happens. There are these characters that pay attention to these really, really insignificant things but in their eyes and their minds they become so significant and there are pages and pages of analyzing these little things it reminds me a lot of another polish writer that i've read bruno schultz uh which i like better than Ritold gombrowicz but his one is uh, fun as well so these are three of the books i'm reading right now excellent well i think on that note it's time for me to say uh, thank you so much for coming on the show um thank you for breaking my brain i hope i didn't well yeah i hope i didn't break your brain beyond repair i think i'll be all right by tomorrow morning yeah we'll see we'll see <laughs> yeah but uh thank you as well thank you for having me on the show and uh thank you for the conversation sorry it was uh, <laughs> a little too wordy uh, well, that's good i think the listeners like that Well, I hope you made it out of that extra long interview with your brain intact. I know that mine tried to make an escape out my uh, ear a few times, but it didn't in the end. It was a, a fab chat with Stefan. Just just fab. So um, just the plug's life now. If you'd like to give any feedback on anything you've heard in this episode or any other episode, your feedback's extremely welcome. Also, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please don't be shy. I- I'd love to hear from anyone. You do not need to be an expert. You just need to be a reader. And you could be a highly trained reader or a novice. Um, it doesn't particularly matter. This is not an elitist podcast. Absolutely not. Um, so yeah, social media where you can get in touch. There's there's a few places, to be honest. Um, here's the best ones. There's Discord. So the show has a Discord server. There'll be a link to join that in the show notes. Instagram is pretty good too. Uh, the show has its own dedicated Instagram account at trchfic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. For uh, Twitter, I just use my own Twitter profile uh, for the show, so that's at Angus Likes Words. I have a Facebook, you can reach me on that, uh, like the show has a Facebook, or you could uh, stalk me and find my own. Uh, you know, there's quite a few different ways if, if you're really determined to get in touch, but I recommend those three social media platforms. Um, other ways you can reach out to the show, i.e. with your wallet. <laughs> if you, yeah, If you like the show and you'd like to give something back, you can support it. There is a support the show link in the show notes. Just click that and then you'll see the various ways you can do that and also get access to like uh, bonus shows on Patreon. There is a lot of those now and a lot of them are very good in my opinion. Worth forking out some, some monies for. But obviously the best thing you can do for the show is not about money. It's about spreading the words. So tell your friends, tell your family and tell the piglets, brides and entities that you meet on your way to the swamp. Until you get there, Sajian. Yeah.